Welcome to Proof of Decentralization. I'm Chris Black. On this episode, we are diving into VC influence in DeFi. We're taking a close look at whether we as users need to worry about whether our interests are competing with those of venture capital firms and corporations who are existing in the space. I'm joined by a great guy. His name is Mark Boyron. He's a general counsel for DYDX. He's also a committee member for the somewhat controversial DeFi Education Fund. We're going to get into a lot of very interesting issues. This is a bit of a long episode, but if you hang in there, if you're interested in these topics, you're going to want to listen to every single second of it. So thanks for joining and enjoy. Mark Boyron. Is that how you pronounce your name? Boyron? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, thanks for chatting. It's been a long time coming. It has. I agree. We've had lots had, of chats. They've just been we, uh, Twitter messages. <laughs> I don't know if I... Yeah, they're not chats. Like when you when you have a Twitter conversation, it's not... A real conversation, like just the tone of voice. You lose, you lose context. You lose. I mean, you can tell a lot from somebody's voice, right? Yeah, I agree with that. I think you can. You can tell a lot from the way that they verbalize things or the way that they speak, or you can tell if they're being honest. I agree. Dishonest. I don't know. I feel like Twitter is a big giant mess, and it's like we use it because we have to. Yeah. But. I mean, it can be a fun mess, but it's it's definitely a mess. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, um, I mean, we already talked about like just chatting and not like, it's not like my normal podcast where it's like an interview or, right. And, and the reason for it is it's not even, you know, it's not like about you or about DYDX really. It's about just a general question. <clears throat> so I'll just throw out there. I kind of, cause I wanted to focus it a little bit, <laughs> you know, so I just jotted down like a premise and it's like the general premise that I've been coming from for a while, however long we've been having this chat. So the premise that I just jotted down, I think it encompasses most of it is financial incentives dictate that most of DeFi's liaisons to regulators and governments will always promote agendas that favor corporate and VC interests over those of individual users. Um, Do you think that's a fair assessment of like what you think my take is on the general situation we're supposed to be talking about? Yeah. I mean, yep. Sounds perfect. I agree with that. So after hearing that, like, not to put you on the spot with it, but like, do you, how would your opinion just on that sentence differ from mine? Or is it the same or is it different? I think it'll often be exactly as you described it, um, but not exclusively, right? So I think you need to look at like where it's coming from, right? So like the easy ones, right? Like what's, what's Coinbase going to do when it has its policy people involved? Like, I think that's like the easy question, right? Um, I I think one step removed from that, I I view it almost as like a spectrum, right? Is, so Coinbase, I think is pretty obvious. I think when you go one step removed, and I don't think you'd remove them one step, but I do, is the VCs, right? Because I think for, um, 
Coinbase, they have like their, their own interest. The VCs have like a split interest, right? It's like they want to maximize value for themselves, like obviously, right? But they have to do it by maximizing value of tokens and or equity that they hold in companies. And therefore, for them to do that, they need those companies to be, or the protocols or both, to be successful. And so I view them as one step removed from Coinbase because when they need to start looking at the interests of portfolio companies and thus and protocols, they have to consider users of those more than Coinbase needs to, right? So like I, I view them as a little bit removed from that. Then you go like one step removed from that, um, right? And you start looking at like the actual portfolio companies and therefore those building protocols, right? And I think like when you've got a company building a protocol, um, I but but an open source protocol, right? Not, not a, a centralized uh, entity like Coinbase. Um, I think they're uh, more likely to push policies that help users like more than, than the VCs would have. And then I think when you go like one step removed from that, you've got protocols where there are no companies. It's just a bunch of individuals who are uh, building something. And then I think they're like the most likely to build a, uh, to focus on interests of just the users and not themselves. So like, I kind of like view that as like a spectrum. That makes sense. I could see that. I think you're right that like, I mean, I wasn't even taking into consideration like the, the cent. Well, I mean, I am to a certain extent, like the centralized exchanges like Coinbase and whoever else, um, that's one thing. Then you, like you said, you've got the, the venture capital, which is investing in them, but also investing in DeFi right? And in various decentralized projects. And then it goes down from there. Um, but it, the centralized exchanges sort of start to come into play when you're talking about who's actually doing, having the conversations with the regulators, right? Because not only are they, not only is Coinbase having conversations with regulators, and nobody would expect Coinbase to have anybody's interests at heart except for the company and their shareholders. That makes sense. Um, but one thing that sort of flies under the radar, I find a lot and that people don't really understand are the industry associations, you know, like the blockchain association or, and, and there's one for basically every country now, right? Where there's any sort of, of tech scene. And so those associations are heavily funded by centralized crypto companies, centralized tech companies, centralized, you know, banks, you know, basically all across the board, centralized entities plus venture capital. And those guys, would you say that those associations are sort of, are leading the charge as far as DeFi? Let's, I'll try to keep it to DeFi as much as we can. Yeah. As far okay. as DeFi lobbying goes? Yeah, I'd say... I'd say the DeFi education fund is probably the one that most people are looking to right now um, because it's the only like substantial organization that is like, I'd say purely focused on, on DeFi, really substantial. Um, but I would say that like, once you get past the DeFi education fund, 
Yeah, I mean, that's entirely, that's pretty close to entirely right. And I think the blockchain association is an important part of that. And when you look at the blockchain association, you're like, and I, and I can't speak, like, I think all these trade organizations, frankly, are set up very differently, right? Blockchain association is probably one of the easier ones to look at because basically their point is like, if you're a member, like you're going to have a voice. And they're like pretty good at like trying to balance the voice of all their members, but it's like, you know, there's 70 members there now, right? Like it's a pretty difficult task to do. And so, you know, when you, when you look at like most of what the blockchain association does, um, it's not DeFi related, it's, it's other stuff and they listen to their members for that. I think for the DeFi stuff, they look at to the DeFi members and say, who are our points of contact there? Let's have discussions with them about it. Um, and now that Jake Chervinsky is obviously over there uh, and he knows DeFi very well, he has like a heavy amount of like input in things over there. And so, yeah, their views are basically going to be conveyed through their members who tell them this is an issue for us or this is not an issue for us. Yeah, I guess um, part of the issue there is that most of what they do does affect DeFi, right? Because they are having conversations about stable coins. They are having conversations about a lot of different aspects of crypto that do affect DeFi, but they don't have the full context of DeFi. And now that Jake is there, who was the uh, general counsel for Compound, I believe, right? Um He's just joined the blockchain association, so maybe they will have more context as far as like if what they're lobbying for will screw up DeFi. But then you've got <clears throat> back to my original premise. Um, and I don't know. Are there DeFi organizations that are members of the blockchain association? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, DYDX is, Uniswap is, Aave is, Compound is. Um, Okay. Who else is? I mean, there's 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 quite a few, but you know, I, I think some of the most of the more substantial. I mean, I don't know if you put Terra in there. I think Terra is. Um, I think like if you take more most of the like more substantial DeFi protocols in size, I think they they're probably part of the blockchain association, or many of them are. Okay. And by the way, it's worth pointing out like they the second there's something that impacts DeFi, they reach out to the members. And they say, we're working on this. What is your view on it? Right. So like, I, I yeah. would not say that. I don't know that blockchain association really ever does anything or has, I don't think blockchain association has done anything in DeFi without talking to DeFi companies and builders of protocols in DeFi about their views on it. When those situations happen, I'm sure you've been at least involved in some of them and those conversations are happening and something comes up that's going to impact DeFi, and then you've got the attorneys and you know the CEOs and whoever calling the blockchain association members and whoever else that they think is going to be in front of a regulator. Would you say that their general goal is to protect their own business, their own project, their own ambitions, you know, as far, like they're not thinking about the DeFi space as much as they're thinking about their narrow focus on it. Would you say that? This is such a hard answer thing to answer because I can't speak for others. I only know like how I feel about it. And like until a year ago, I represented a significant number of DeFi companies as outside counsel from 
random individuals building protocols to the biggest DeFi companies. And so like in that lens, like when I would, would talk about it, like my own interest was like, how do we grow DeFi to be something that the regulators like frankly can't regulate? I mean, my, my mm-hmm. view is like <laughs> essentially, how do we beat the regulators? That's kind of how I look at it. And so that's always been the lens through which I've approached them. Now that I'm at DYDX, has things changed? The answer is no. I mean, DYDX, you, you already know it, right? It's a hybrid exchange. So in terms of like the typical things that like DeFi companies are fighting against, like DYDX is not actually just completely different position actually. But the truth is that like, how does DeFi win? DeFi only wins by being completely decentralized because the moment you have centralized components, the rationale for regulating those DeFi companies is the exact same as regulating the centralized companies. And therefore they should be regulated in the same way. You, you make this point implicitly or explicitly. Well, in that case, DYDX should be regulated today, right? DYDX does not operate in the US for this specific reason. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that is exactly why. Antonio has always been a thoughtful founder and, and that doesn't operate in the US. Um, and so, um, you know, when, so when I'm like- Can talking- I just back that up for a second? Sure. They don't operate in the US, but the way that's usually handled is through KYC, right? Through through registering users, getting proof of residence, um, et cetera, which DYDX doesn't do. Um, they handle it through geo-blocking. So I don't think that totally negates what I just said. You know, based on what you're saying, DYDX should be complying today. If we're saying a centralized entity should be complying with regulation. Um, so I just wanted to like clarify that because, you know, it's, it's, we're, you know, there's a clear reason that DYDX isn't. KYC new users and stuff like that. And I don't want them to, and I don't think that they should have to. I'm anti-KYC AML entirely. Um, but I also think that if we're going to put everybody into that bucket, we should just clarify what we're talking about. Because I don't really see the distinction between DYDX and other exchanges in that regard. So yeah. so I think there's like a few things to, to say about that. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be specific, but I'll tell you where I'm not going to be specific. And I won't be specific literally where for like privilege reasons, I can't not be, spe- I can't be specific. Okay. Um, so we do KYC and I, 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 we don't do KYC. And I would argue that um, many um, uh, DeFi protocols that geofence don't really geofence, <laughs> um, they they don't really try to geofence, right? They they try to throw something up that looks like they're actually doing something. Um, that's actually not the case with with DYDX. Um, we have to follow regulations. Is is the point? Like we, it, it doesn't matter how much we hate them. <laughs> like we 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 have to, um, and we also have to advocate to change them. Side note, but like we have to, and so given that fact, we actually take this very seriously. Um, except. The problem is like, we don't believe that KYC is actually the right approach to it. 
Um, we also don't think we have an obligation to do it. So the question is like, how do we comply with what our obligations actually are? And that is to have reasonable measures to not have US people trading on there. And so like, what are reasonable measures? So we geofence um, on the, the, the front end. Um, that geofencing is something that like, every time you come there, we know what IP address you come from, right? And so we know whether it's US based or not. Um, this is the part where I'm not going to get into like the specifics of exactly how we do it, but like, we don't like end there, right? Like we actually try to figure out, um, whether you are trying to circumvent that geofencing. Um, we don't actually just sit back and say, oh, he accidentally once connected from the U S but was never, you know, connected to the U.S. before that <laughs> um, and say, oh, he's good to go. No, we'll actually do something about that. And the point is that, like, we are actively um, doing things consistently to try to figure out whether somebody is trying to circumvent that geofencing. I would say the second thing to your point, which, again, won't get into specifics too for privilege, is we actually have internal policies that deal with the fact that there are centralized components of the um, exchange to make sure that uh, there are restrictions on what employees can do and can't do under certain circumstances for this exact reason that like a typical DeFi protocol um, wouldn't have. So yeah, we, we 100% recognize like what you're saying and there's reasons why we, we, we honestly spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to do this in the best way possible while following the fact that we do not believe that we should be KYCing people or have to KYC people. So when you guys were putting together the policy for um, for geo-blocking and deciding on how you're going to handle this stuff, um, there must have been conversations that happened with regulators or with somebody familiar with the regulation, or maybe you're familiar enough with the regulatory stuff where you're able to just give that advice, right? Yeah, that was, that was done with us and, and council, not with the regulators, yeah. Okay. Uh, so there's specific, like there's a specific, I guess where I'm going to is there's a specific way that regulation today or future regulation could affect DYDX. And you as DYDX's general counsel have to take that into consideration specifically when you're deciding um, the way that you're going to handle verification or whether or not you're going to KYC or geofence or whatever. Like those decisions are made specifically with regard to your entity, like you're not thinking about Uniswap at that point as much as you're thinking about your own interests, like the specific aspects of DYDX, like, because there's obviously more centralized parts with DYDX, you need to put, give consideration to things differently than an AMM would, or, you know, some other um, different type of DeFi application would, right? So you're looking at it through a prism that's specific to your situation. So if I can interrupt for one second, mm -hmm. that's partially accurate, partially, partially. So yes, but we have to like, when I work with any company historically, like I choose to work with companies that have like same views as me and policies as me, right? Um, like DYDX um, has always planned to completely decentralized DYDX. Given that fact, um, from a policy perspective, the version of DYDX that will forever exist is going to be the decentralized version of DYDX. 
And therefore, from my perspective, when I'm like looking from a policy perspective, if I were only looking at it from GYDX's point of view, which we could talk about later because I don't, <laughs> but assuming I were was, my incentive would be 100% to protect a completely decentralized protocol as well as possible because that is what DYDX will be. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but but again, like you're looking at that, even that you're looking at from DYDX's point of view, right? As far as like it's in the future, we need to think a year or two or three ahead. We need to get down the road. Whereas Uniswap uh, General Counsel is thinking about like today, here's what could happen in the next six months with regard to fully decentralized AMMs or something like that. I get what you're saying. I guess my point is every general counsel for every DeFi project has a slightly different take on what is critical and what um, will make sense and will not make sense as far as regulation goes. Um, so I, I agree. I, and there's I not a hive mind, obviously. No, I agree. And I, I don't want to like try to put myself in too much of like some special bucket compared to others, but like I, I, I come from it slightly from a different perspective for a few reasons. A, I advise several companies um, and in the DeFi space. Um, and so when, when we look at that, DYDX isn't the only, if, if we were to look at it as like, I only care about my own interest, which generally is the good perspective uh, and mostly true for, for even me. Um, uh, I have broader interests because of exactly that. So I advise you know, four or five different companies in the, in the DeFi space. Um, on top of that, um, I was outside counsel to, as I said, many of these DeFi protocols and developers. I would say that like what ends up happening from a policy perspective um, will have a meaningful impact on what people think of me, <laughs> having crafted a lot of what has happened in DeFi. Um, and therefore, I very much care like where this ends up on like very distribute like on Uniswap. Like <laughs> I very, very, very much care like how things turn out for Uniswap because like yeah, my reputation's like decently on the line as having represented Uniswap. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, if Uniswap gets decimated in any way by a new rule. Pretty much everybody's going to get decimated in some way. It's like they're they're a building block of DeFi, right? So, you know, uh, it's important, obviously, to look at everything at the whole picture. I guess my point before that I just want to make sure we get acknowledged, just because I feel like it's really important, is that these are still private companies. Like DYDX is a private company, Uniswap is a private company. They're all private companies that hire their own general counsel and their own you know regulatory experts and policy heads or whatever they're doing um, and they don't share them they share them in an association the, like the defi education fund but they still have their own people to represent their own interests and each of those people including you um like we said before, is incentivized to put you, you're incentivized to put DYDX's interests ahead of other DeFi projects, first of all, in the space. Yes, I understand everybody wants to work together. Everybody wants to, see, you know, what is the rising tide raises all ships or whatever. I get that. But at the same time, we can't pretend these aren't 
individual for-profit organizations where, you know, to the, to the extent, even to draw it out all the way, um, if DYDX had to do something that would help DYDX, but hurt, uh, another DeFi project, it's incentivized to do that as long as hurting that other DeFi project doesn't hurt DYDX more. <laughs> it's a game of incentives to that extent. Is that fair? Yeah, I think your description is accurate. I, I think the important part is to consider the incentives holistically, right? Which is, I, I talked about some of them, right? Like me being um, at, at DYDX is one of them. Me advising other companies is one of them. My reputation for past advice to others is one of them. Um, the tokens that I hold, the too many tokens that I hold in either other DeFi companies, <laughs> um, at least for the last six months, um, is another one. Um, the frankly broader number of tokens that I hold in 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 things is another one, and they're like meaningful, right? Like it's actually th this is like kind of an important point, which is like uh, lawyers talk about it once in a while, which is like do you get paid in tokens or not paid in tokens as like outside counsel? And like I used to never get paid. Um, as outside counsel in tokens, I'd never accept it because like literally it's really hard to give like advice when you're like, well, if I let you be way more aggressive, my tokens are likely going to be worth way more. Um, and mm -hmm. so my, my point is just that there is way broader incentive for me. And I'm guessing, frankly, most <laughs> DeFi lawyers, um, to care about everything as a whole simply because of the, purely because of their financial interests being beyond just that of the one company that they work with. Okay. On a personal level. Yeah. I mean, I get that. I think, I think a lot of this is probably because we are still in early days too. Wouldn't you say, I think that, you know, in the early nineties, you know, internet was just starting to bubble up there was a lot less thought about competition between web services companies and stuff than there is now. Right. So much of this is because, you know, it's DeFi against the world as a category, right. You know, and, and, um, that's something that's bound to metamorphize over the next, uh, few years, right. As far as, what that's going to look like. There's going to be more competition in the DeFi space. We don't know how quickly it's going to come. I mean, we're already seeing competition, obviously. Sure. You know, if, if SushiSwap and Uniswap was happening today, it would be a, it could be a whole different situation. It'd be tons of lawyers, could be front page of the New York Times, could be, maybe they'd go to Congress, you know, who knows? <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's funny to think that was only, what, a year, a year and a half ago? But it's yeah. so much has changed since then that I feel like stuff like that now where there's billions at stake uh, and the regulators are watching, it's like, wow, maybe this is something we should bring in front of Congress. You know, so um, I think that uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the next couple of years play out. But so I think so far we're we're agreeing on stuff, you know, as far as the where the incentives lie, how they might get in between certain aspects of what's going on. You know, yes, each DeFi project is a private company for the most part, not all of them, but most of them, uh, that um, are incentivized to pursue their own interests. Yes, their own interests today involve 
raising DeFi as an industry. Um, it might not always be that way. Uh, so where does that leave users? You know, because one of the things that I'm, that, you know, I'm most passionate about is, is privacy and privacy within the financial realm is a hot issue all over the world. Right. And it's been a hot issue and a losing battle pretty much in traditional finance for ages. DeFi sort of came out of the gate and gave us the private, the promise that we would have more of our freedom, right? When we started to sort of evolve things and get the message out in 2019. Um, and now it's already like two and a half years later, almost three years later. Uh, and we're starting to see that promise fade. So one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is how are users' interests, and specifically around privacy, how are they, what's the incentive of any DeFi project or DeFi association to represent users to the extent that somebody like me would, as far as fighting for privacy and fighting for freedom for the people, the actual people who are getting this thing going? Where is that, where is that incentive? Like how is, and how do we justify the lack of it if there is none? Yeah. I mean, this gets kind of into a broader question that on on incentives, and it's one like I told you we, I'd want to chat with you about like some stuff as well, and I, I would love to chat later about like your incentives because some of your incentives are actually not just financial, right? Some of your incentives are actually just um, philosophical freedom, what you actually believe in, slash the fact that you want to live freely, even if it might cost you money, you still want to live freely, and I totally agree with that. I, I would say a lot of people in crypto probably actually believe that. When, when I have discussions with um, other lawyers in the blockchain association in DeFi specifically, um, like uh, the easiest example is FATF, right? Like when, when things were happening with FATF and, and those, those discussions, privacy always comes up. The, the easy thing for all of us to do and like there's always like one or two lawyers who are like on board with doing this is to throw privacy like out the window and now we're good. <laughs> like if we were to just like give in and say, yeah, let's ban privacy coins and let's figure out how to ban tornado cash, like discussions with regulators would actually be like really, really easy actually for DeFi. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, if we were to like agree with regulators and be like, let's KYC things, um, discussions would be really, really easy with regulators. I, it's definitely not in my financial interest to do this. I could make arguments for why it might be, but it's not. But like we like 100% have said we will never make that argument. It is not an argument we will make. I, I don't think it's in anybody's financial interest who's there, but it is 100% part of our philosophical philosophy philosophical <laughs> belief that like, we just won't do that. We don't want that. That is not the world that we want to live in. And therefore we're not going to make that argument. Instead, we are going to defend it, even if it makes it harder to defend DeFi because that's what we believe in. <laughs> it's like really that simple. It might not be good for our pockets, but like, I don't want to live in a world that has KYC 
even worse than today because they can look through every single thing. And frankly, I don't want that for my kids. Like, I don't want us to be China. <laughs> like, I don't want that. And so it doesn't matter like that it's bad for my money that financially, or frankly, that it takes way more time and effort to deal with this. It's just worth it. What would happen if you guys came together today and said, you know what, let's put together a strategy for lobbying that puts it on the table, that puts privacy on the table, puts KYC on the table, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, and we're going to, you know, put it on the table. We're going to sell it out if they give us what we want. What do you think would happen to DeFi? Can you like say that again? I'm not sure I totally followed what you meant. I'm asking if privacy was sacrificed by all the DeFi projects that are out there pushing for regulations or pushing to impact regulations and privacy is just sold out. Uh, what kind of, do you think that would have a negative impact on DeFi? Uh, I do. Very, <laughs> I very, do. Like it's a, it would be a very negative impact on DeFi. Right. What I'm so thinking. there's your, there's your financial incentive. Yeah, but but I'm not sure that it is uh, like it's it's not just financially the case. If I think of like short term, how could we? How could DeFi grow like short term? Like you know it, you expect it to happen for this reason. Short term, what would happen? You get tons of institutions using it, driving fees, driving token holder value up. Like that's actually in the short term. If all I cared about was like money, I could make. I'm guessing most people in DeFi could push for that and make more money doing that. But what I, I think I've conveyed this to you in the past is like, I'm like not really a big believer in like short-term incentives. Like I know a lot of people are, but like, that's like very weak. <laughs> like um, you have to think about things for like 50 years because you have a reputation and some people have kids and like, <laughs> you got to think about those things. And um, financially, would things be better um, down the road? I know things will be better for life down the road if we do it for, for like my kids, um, for the world I want to live in. Will things be better financially for me? Um, I think the answer would, I, I still think the answer would be yes to your point that it would be better for me. Um, if You're talking about if privacy is preserved? If privacy is preserved, I think in the long term, but maybe for different reasons than you think. People don't care about privacy, sadly. They just don't. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's pathetic, but we've seen it. Like just Facebook, sure. Facebook because of that. Just um, like they don't care about decentralization or trustlessness or anything else. Yeah. Yes. Average but, Joe. Yeah. But why is it that DeFi wins if it cares about privacy? Well, it's because for the same reason as DeFi wins if it cares about decentralization, which is the second that you give those things up, what you basically do is you give access to regulators to things that they want to be able to regulate better. And when with regulators get what they want to regulate better, what they basically do is like shrink the global market of people who can participate thing, it, in things to like a smaller group of them who have more money. But ultimately, it's a smaller group of, of people. And if you actually maintain, I think, privacy, as well as decentralization, frankly, even more on the decentralization point, you're basically going to have eventually like a much bigger market to have par like participate in a protocol than if you eliminate those and satisfy like 
the few people who care to like actually KYC things. Um, so I, I guess in the long term, it's probably in my financial interest to care about privacy. But honestly, that's like, <laughs> I, it's hard to tell, but like, that's like literally never been one of the conversations that we've had. I, I mean, financial interests obviously show up like not just in like, oh yeah, I have a financial. It's like deep down. That is like just not the sense that I get from like other DeFi lawyers. It's like, it's at the core of what you actually care about, <laughs> like for, from a, from a belief system. And like, we just, I just don't want to give them up. And like, financially, I am more certain that I can make more money if I give up privacy. I think I can make a lot more money if we don't give up privacy in the long term, but with a lot less certainty about that. And so like financially, like if I really want to look at this objectively and I rationalize it, I should care. I should not care about privacy because it would increase my net worth. Um, but it, it's just not worth it. <laughs> but you're talking you're talking personally, right? Like as Mark, you're talking short term versus long term. If we're talking about DYDX, is it the same? Does DYDX care about? And this is taking into consideration everything you know about the direction that regulation's heading, the amount of surveillance that goes on in traditional finance, the inevitable, and I see it as inevitable requests that are going to be made to to companies like DYDX for information, for data, for um, surveillance, perhaps. Uh, so in the long term, if DYDX puts itself in a position where it cannot, it's almost forced to preserve privacy, like we were saying, do you think longer term, that would be a more lucrative business for it? I'm not sure. I, because what, what's very clear is that it's more lucrative for DYDX to be decentralized. Like I, that, that's like an easy one. And that's the part that I think about like, you know, all day long. Is it more lucrative for DYDX to be privacy enhanced? I would say yes, but for reasons probably different than the ones you're thinking. <laughs> um, uh, DYDX has an order book model, right? Um, unlike an AMM. Uh, what that means is that uh, market makers um, use strategies on DYDX, um, just like they do on, on centralized exchanges and any other order book model. Um, when those strategies are um, transparent, they are uh, more unlikely to want to participate in that exchange than if it is private. This is part of what drove the desire to be on Starkware, for example, which you know nobody can see uh, uh, what is going on there from a like privacy perspective. Um, okay. We would want, and we would financially be incentivized, I think, to want privacy because market makers are more likely to use the DYDX protocol if it is private than if it is transparent. Are you talking about privacy within the ecosystem, like traders not seeing what other traders are doing? I'm talking about 
privacy of an individual user, no matter what they're how they're participating in the network, uh, from a regulator or yeah. from a government. No, so I, I totally follow that. My I, mm-hmm. I just didn't. I I wasn't not answering it. I didn't. I didn't address that because that is not where DYDX would get financial value from. Most likely, most okay. likely, privacy to market makers is where DYDX would uh, get the most value. Privacy to users. Users don't care about privacy. So, is it something that is going to? Wow. Okay. Hold up. <laughs> yeah. Some do. Oh, Some sure. Do. No, no. Yeah, but we're talking yeah. about how wait, we're talking about financial incentives, right? And so like if 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 you're talking about financial incentives, how does something become big? You either need to become big like if you assume that there is a big enough market of pri- of users who are sensitive to like privacy then it's 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 an easy calculus right like you you're you're going to focus on privacy you're going to focus on that market you're going to differentiate yourself on that front alone um if you assume that the market is, of people who care about privacy is tiny then you have to assume that that is not going to be the thing that is going to drive value it's it's going to be it's going to be irrelevant compared to the other portion it's just not going to matter right? If you think about it from a financial perspective. And so you need something that is not a financial incentive for an exchange to care about privacy, right? It has to do with a founder actually caring about it, the team caring about it and wanting to do it potentially at the expense, probably not at the expense, but do it anyway, even though it's not going to be a driver of growth. Right. And does that exist? With your Does company, what? for instance, like, is that there? Is there, is there, cause you're talking about exactly the issue that I'm concerned about is that to, to preserve the principles that, that I advocate for, for instance, around privacy and other principles like that, it, it involves more than, um, you know, just about whether or not it's going to make for a good business. It involves core principles that involve being willing almost to give up business, give up profit, give up future revenue, give up goodwill with regulators uh, in order to preserve that. The financial incentives are not there. And just we're using DYDX as an example. I don't mean, you know, just because that's where you work. But this goes for most of DeFi. Uh, To preserve these principles, companies, especially those with VC investments, would have to sacrifice on all those things I mentioned, plus they would have to sacrifice uh, on behalf of their their shareholders, their investors. You know, and there's just so many reasons to believe that these DeFi organizations and their employees and their counsel and their lobbyists are not going to take into consideration or prioritize the principles that this space were kind of, was kind of founded upon, you know? So that's where, that's the premise that I'm sort of trying to build on is that it's not there. There's no, it's not like if we, if in five years DYDX is a, you know, hundred billion dollar business, um, 
that has zero privacy, full regulators are thrilled because they're getting all the data they need. They're able to track if terrorists are using it. They're able to find all the drug dealers. And in the process, they're able to also get you know, millions of people's trade data, everything straight to the IRS, probably at that point. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, that, that's where we're heading, you know, and I just, that's, that's the, um, I don't see the incentive to stop that from happening. If we end up there in a few years, it's not like anybody's going to be financially worse for the wear. It's only, and, and that, that process is only going to happen. That change is only going to happen if it, directly benefits the company. Yeah. DYDX Inc., right? So go ahead. So I don't I don't agree with that. I'll give you examples of things where we spend a lot of money and a lot of time. We've already spent a lot of money and a lot of time um, in ways that are contrary to our interests in that way be- because we believe this. So one example being, I think you're like aware of this, we host like trading competitions. Um, when we pay out um, winners of those training competitions, um, what would most companies do? They would um, get tax information from those individuals, submit the information to the IRS. What did we do? (laughs) We spent hours and hours and a lot of money with our tax advisors to figure out how it is that we could comply with tax laws without collecting an ounce of information. It turns out the IRS has something that if you don't know an individual's information, you can actually still uh, submit a tax form that shows the dollar amounts that you paid out to people um, without ever collecting their information. Like that just frankly, just purely cost us money and time. We're working on something else right now that I don't think has been disclosed, so I won't talk about it. Mm-hmm. We're literally redoing entire tax forms in a way that is compliant um, just so that we can strip out information that the IRS requires on its tax form so that we do not need to collect it from users. This literally would be so easy for us to include on that form the exact information the IRS requires. It would be safer for us to it. We'd have less risk. <laughs> but we're literally saying, how can we minimize the amount of information we are going to collect. And we are pushing our tax advisors. Every time they say we need this, we say, no, no, no. And we go read everything and we figure out where it is that there is a argument that can be made that we don't need that information so that we don't need to collect it. So, I mean, is it our financial interest? Yeah. I mean, I think users are happy to know that that we are not requiring them to give that information. I, do some of them, will they even realize that we would have had to collect that information if we had just used the IRS's tax form? Like probably not. Um, it's just, it's, it's like the, the right thing to do. If we don't need to collect that information and send it to the IRS, like let's not collect it <laughs> and send right. it to the IRS. Like, and what- like but that's that, that doesn't mean like we're like angels, right? Like there are other competitions where we're obligated to collect complete tax information. And mm-hmm. actually, we don't need to submit it to the IRS. We just hold it. Like, we don't like that, but we literally could not find a loophole on not doing that. And and therefore, we have to do it. And so, like, there's an example where, I mean, it's not in our corporate interest. Truth is, like, if I was an individual and I had somebody, I paid somebody $600 or more, like, I'd give them a 1099, right? Like, um, and then deliver one to the IRS. I just have to. And it's the same thing. But, like, yeah, we we really do try to find 
like every loophole possible um, where we can and where we think it is defensible in some way. And and I think what your argument is there is that you don't have a direct financial incentive to do that. That's more about just you guys want to see the space grow. You want to keep principles in the space. You want to protect um, users as far as you know what they may face down the road. You don't have a financial incentive. I mean, obviously, an argument can be made. Yeah, it's sure. if you did do it by the book, it would look pretty bad for the company and there would be a PR shitstorm and you'd have me tweeting bad things about you. But um, that's, I I mean, you know, there's other companies out there like, you know, I think um, even centralized exchanges, some of them like, like Kraken and some others who have been and like Eric Voorhees and stuff who have been, you know, sort of keen on protecting the principles, you know, um, of the space. And even if it means, potentially hampering the business. Um, so, I mean, I but your argument, Eric has hurt business for the benefit of, of privacy, which I think is fantastic. There's no doubt that Eric has done that. Right. Right. So he's an example of sort of what you're putting out there as the financial incentives don't always drive the decision-making. Um, my premise right back to the start is the financial incentives, whether or not they ultimately drive the decision-making, they're all that we have to go on. And nine times out of 10, they do ultimately drive the decision-making, right? So as the space matures and as more money starts to flow through it and as more eyes are on it from a regulator's point of view, and as um, investors in in the space, VCs and otherwise, maybe eventually shareholders. Who knows? Maybe some of these companies might start to go public. We don't know where it's going, uh, <laughs> right? So, you know, in another five years, ten years, what are the odds that those principles are going to hold true as these companies grow into hundred person companies, thousand person companies, ten thousand person companies? Uh, pretty low, you know, it's like, so as a startup, I've been part of many startups, you know, you, you're able to have a small team, you're able to be like-minded, you're able to share principles, you're able to keep things private, you're able to um, talk to your board directly, you know, you're able to talk to your shareholders directly. Um, and it's easier to stay principled, you know, sort of that bright-eyed and bushy-tailed thing, you know, but as time goes on, do you or do you not agree that it's harder and harder and harder to maintain those principles. And the faster a company grows, the more rapidly it loses sight of those principles. I mean, I a hundred percent agree with you. That's why like this, that's why like, uh, yeah, I, I mean, our, our, our Twitter conversations are always funny because the, the fact like what you don't know that like others know is that I, I always say that like Chris is actually like right about so much more than people want to admit. Right. Um, <laughs> And that's so, the clip I'm going to use to promote this episode. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's actually perfect. That's good. I like that. Um, the um, so so no, you're 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 obviously right. Like you know, like it's um, you know my my management professor during my MBA always said, "What gets rewarded gets done." Right, and that's the premise of your like thoughts on around incentives. The 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 core being the problem is people don't care about privacy and not everybody, right? We, we've already been through this, like people in general. And therefore 
companies are going to say, my users don't care about this. And therefore, I'm going to not focus on that. And I'm going to maybe even take advantage of that. And that's why, like, yeah, you're, you're entirely right. They're like, and we've already seen it, right? Like, we've seen it in web two. And so um, in web three, companies are going to do the same. I think the more interesting question, though, is have they built protocols where it either doesn't matter or the risk to the users is significantly minimized, even if they do that? I think that's really like the more interesting question. Uniswap's the best example of this. Like, <laughs> I personally don't care what the Uniswap company does. Why? Because there's a protocol that's completely decentralized. So then we get to the front end, right? And we say, great, there's a protocol that's completely decentralized, but they can still screw with us on the front end. And I would say like a couple things on that. First of all, the great thing about Uniswap is that like, a, a significant majority of their volume doesn't even come through their front end, right? It like comes through, you know, integrations and other front ends and things of that nature. So in that sense, like once you have that decentralized protocol, you've put like a somewhat of a limitation on just how much a company can actually invade your privacy or otherwise, you know, mess around with anything you care about, right? That's obviously why we love decentralized protocols. Um, so I'd say like, that's like the first thing is like, that's why I don't really care for Uniswap is that it, it, it's so limited. I know I have other options. If Uniswap wants to do that to me, like I'll just go to another front end and I will ignore the Uniswap front end for that, that reason. Now, Uniswap's a rare actually example of why I don't care because Uniswap's become so popular that there are so many front ends. Um, there are so many ways I can interact with Uniswap without ever actually caring about the front end. That's very different from like smaller protocols where, you know, there probably is less of an incentive to develop like uh, alternative front ends and therefore they don't exist or to aggregate with them. Um, and so that's where like, I think the importance of like decentralized front ends is, I mean, it's it's the most important thing, frankly, to figure out right now. We It, it can already exist. The problem is it exists in a, a crappy user experience. I think some of us would actually prefer to use that crappy user experience, but for them to exist. But I think that there's, to the point we've talked about, not enough users that do care about that. And therefore they want that better user experience. And so we continue to have like these, these centralized front ends. Um, but I think it's, I, I think, I hope I'm right. I think that we are going to continue to get pushed due to regulations so that we can fight the regulators <laughs> to have decentralized front ends more and more. And we're going to get to a point where Uniswap doesn't matter. Like, I don't care if they build, they can go ahead and build a V4, like in whatever centralized way they want. I have, I have this freaking awesome one, two, and three version of Uniswap that I can use. Um, and they're going to create that other one. And unfortunately, users are going to be like dumb enough to go use that centralized version of it. By the way, I'm, I'm not saying they're going to build a centralized version. I have no clear. And side note, Hayden is like the biggest pro decentralization like human you'll like ever meet if you actually know Hayden. <laughs> and so I'd be like beyond shocked if he actually built that. But let's leave that aside. It's crazy um, that he has me blocked on Twitter, right? Really crazy. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Probably for other reasons. <laughs> yeah. But just, Either way. Just wanted to, to chime in on a couple of things. First of all, I don't even know if 
people aren't using decentralized front ends because um, it's difficult as much as they just don't even know about them. They don't know they exist. They don't like when you look at the number of people that use, for instance, MetaMask's swap tool, even though there's a fee involved, even though they're not getting the best rates half the time. Um, the volume that they do is the best indicator of the number of people in the space that don't know what they don't know. Right. So when we're talking about decentralized front ends and and even when we're talking about, okay, if Uniswap promotes a version four, they they use their sway to get uni governance to add liquidity rewards and all these incentives to move your liquidity there, basically drain everything out of the other um, version one through three into four because it's the ultimate. Um, A, everybody's going to use that because they don't know any different. All the um, these, all the third-party tools are going to direct there. You're smart enough to know, okay, I can still use two, you know. but you're a boomer by then, dude. You're like outdated. Everybody's using version four. You're sitting there in two with like next to no liquidity, just chilling. So it does matter to me what the startup pr- companies behind these protocols do and what their goals are, what their ambitions are. You know, Uniswap's, organization behind the protocol is a company, is for profit, has shareholders, has a CEO, has their own council, and like I said before, their own team, and it's growing rapidly. Um, and they're hiring, I believe, if you need a job. Um, that matters what they think and what they do and what their goals are, what their incentives are as a public company, or as a private company um, that, hey, may one day go public, like I said. Uh, there's no reason Uniswap Incorporated can't one day go public. Might blow your mind. Think that, guys. But so, um, not saying that's going to happen or that I heard it's going to happen, but it could happen. It's a company. Any company can go public. So, it matters to me what they think. No matter what kind of decentralized protocols they pump out, they're capable of shifting the paradigm. You know, and um, you know. I, I, I don't know if this is the right time to get into it, but it sort of goes back to the DeFi education fund thing where, where we know, at least today, um, the shareholders in Uniswap can make basically anything happen. Okay, so they can put, if they decide as a company, we're going to launch V4, we're going to add rewards to it, we're going to do XYZ, we're going to make sure governance gets this through, they can do it. Like, there's no reason they can't do it. Um, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. They can do it if they decide it's the best business strategy. Um, the same way that they created the DeFi Education Fund, you know. So um, that may we, change over we time. We jump into that now. <laughs> okay, we, sure. We, we, I mean, like I'm. You probably think I don't want to talk about. It. I'm like I'm fine with that. The um, hmm, how to say so. Let me jump back to something to something else you said first, because I think it's important we were on that topic, which is, and then I'll jump back to this. Um, I have the benefit of having represented about 60 to 70 DeFi companies when I was outside council. Um, there, there's a reason I went in-house because I wasn't sleeping. And uh, <laughs> I would say that a significant majority of them will be dissolved in the next five years. So like that doesn't remove the concern that you put because like 
I actually like, I agree with the, the world in which you live, which is a could world, right? Could people do things? Like I, that, that's actually like uh, a framework that is correct is can people do things? Could this, whatever thing we're talking about. So, so could these DeFi companies remain and then go public and drive things in a different way? And so like that has to be like a concern that you think about, right? Like you shouldn't ignore that. It's likely. When, based so, on financial incentives, based on economics, based on business, it's likely to happen. So it's not just could it happen. It's this is the likely path for a successful company to take in America, particularly. Yeah. Until you throw, I can't remember who it is, but somebody talks about, I think Gabe said this before, like regulators are the best like decentralizers or, or forcers of decentralization. Um, you. Look, I, I used to advise all these companies. So like, I, I, I know what I used to say. I'm not talking about any specific company here. But like, the answer is like, the goal is within four years to have dissolved and no longer exist. <laughs> um, it, it, you, you have to play the regulatory framework like through to its end to like reach a conclusion as to what a company is going to do. A centralized company continuing to build at a high rate in a centralized way, the decentralized protocol will get nailed by the regulators. You have to decentralize things. And what that means is that you have to eventually get rid of that company so that there are random people acting. I could tell you because this is like my advice that I've given a massive number of DeFi companies. And Maybe they'll all ignore my advice, <laughs> except I know enough other lawyers who have the same view that like, I don't think they're going to actually go public and continue to exist because I think they are screwed from a regulatory perspective. If they do it, <laughs> they need to decentralize or they're done. And that's why like, like when I think through like a, a lot of like the discussions that things you post and like discussions we've had, like I tell people I'm like way more aligned with Chris than you'd ever imagine for very different reasons, frankly, <laughs> but, but we are. And, and the simple reason is you will lose to the regulators if you do not decentralize. So my point is continuing to have a centralized company is going to result in losing to the regulators. And if you don't have a decentralized protocol, it will result in the protocol losing as well. Hopefully the protocol is decentralized enough that it's just the company that loses, but maybe that's not the case. And so I don't believe that all these companies are going to public. I do believe it will happen with, with like a few companies, like it's unavoidable to your point. I just don't agree with you that it's going to be a big number of them because I think, I think they're screwed if they do, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I guess the way I see it is there's, there's two paths to potential success for all these guys. And one is obviously, like you're saying, decentralize, have a plan to dissolve the company in four years, make sure you're fully, you know, in a, governed by a DAO that has no centralized, no choke points, you know, have your shareholders sort of distribute everything they've got by then and et cetera, et cetera, within the limits of the law, obviously. That's one path, an unstoppable path. The other path is compliance because there is profit potential in compliance, right? So if you do have regulators coming at you, the safest thing you could do, and oftentimes I would argue the most profitable thing you could do 
even more profitable than decentralizing is to figure out a way to maintain the unique aspects of what your of your product, right? The unique things that make you special um, and still be able to comply. You know, so I would make the argument that a lot of the work that the DeFi Education Fund that, and especially the work that industry organizations are doing, they're trying to almost figure out which way makes more sense for their members. You know, and I think that um, in some cases, for instance, with the whole AOPP thing that came up last week, um, that was the, what's it stand for? Address. I can't even uh, know. <laughs> I'm looking it up here. Address ownership proof protocol. So the Swiss travel law, I'll just go in podcast mode for a second and just explain that Switzerland has passed laws that make it required for you as a user, as an individual, to prove your ownership of a um, crypto wallet address before you can withdraw any funds to it. So you can't just put in your crypto address into the centralized exchange and withdraw your Bitcoin or withdraw your ETH willy-nilly like you're used to being able to do. In Switzerland, I think this is in effect. I'm not even sure. I think it's in full effect. So in Switzerland, you have to be able to prove that you actually own that crypto address. And it's not like your friends or your brothers or somebody else's or some evil terrorist uh, who's going to blow something up. So you have to be able to prove it. So what the uh, industry organizations in Switzerland did, instead of... um, I guess, you know, I shouldn't say instead of, I'm sure they pushed back on this for a while. I'm sure that they tried to negotiate this. I'm sure they tried to uh, eliminate it, but they couldn't. So what they're doing now is they're pushing this thing called AOPP, which is a protocol that they've developed with some tech partners that gets integrated into your crypto wallet, whether it's, you know, Trezor or, um, you know, other software wallets or, I mean, eventually, I don't know if MetaMask might support this. I don't know. So, but basically what it does is it gives you like a one button type of way to prove that you own this uh, crypto address to the exchange. So what they did ultimately, and then this is promoted, you can go to aopp.group and you can see this and you can read about it. The way it's being promoted as it's, it's being promoted as good for users Okay, and if you read it, it says, is this going to hurt my privacy? No, this is not going to hurt your privacy. This is all good stuff. This is what you need this. They've sold this into even like super principled groups like Trezor, the hardware wallet makers, who integrated it or who announced they were integrating it last week. And they got such tremendous pushback from users because users didn't see this as good for them. They saw this as capitulation to regulators, right? So where the industry association sees this as, hey, this is a step in the right direction, users see it as capitulation, right? This, the industry associations have the incentive. They're, those centralized exchanges that need to still do business with individuals are members of those trade organizations. The same as in the US that Coinbase 
and uh, Gemini and everybody else are probably members of the Blockchain Association. The Blockchain Association, the Swiss Blockchain Association, all of them are incentivized to support their members. They're not incentivized to fight for the rights of the users. So if there's an opportunity like this one to slip in, I see it as like almost like a, um, a Trojan horse in a way. You know, they slip in this thing that basically tricks users into complying with an onerous regulation. They're incentivized to do that. They're not incentivized to explain the real story to the users. They're not incentivized to say, users, this sucks. We have to do this. Oh, it's horrible. You're losing privacy. So to me, that's one example of a case where the incentives for the organization is just to keep crypto running smoothly so the businesses can keep profiting, even if it means taking away just a little bit of liberty, just a little bit of freedom or privacy from the users. I forget why I started going down this road, though. Do you remember? <laughs> I don't. But I mean, the point is that, yeah, if you have a trade organization that is backed by centralized exchanges who want to keep doing work, and this is just an example, right? Like pointing to what you're talking about. Like, yeah, you should expect that trade organization to like literally just look out for the interests of that of that centralized entity. Like, I, I think we're, we're totally on the same page there. And, and I agree. Okay. I do want to go back to like what you said about the two options, right? The decentralization or the compliance. Um, I don't, I don't agree that the compliance approach will actually work. Here, here's the reason why it won't work. The second you introduce points of centralization, you start invoking more and more and more laws that you can't comply with in a decentralized way, which means you become centralized, which means you become <laughs> just a centralized entity which will not be the decentralized entities. So like, let's work through examples of that. Um, a truly decentralized protocol, I would argue for various reasons, the protocol itself is not subject to OFAC sanction obligations. The second you introduce KYC, basically what you've done is you now have started to um, collect user information. So now, now what happened? Well, for you to introduce that information, that, that request, you've started to introduce points of centralization, right? So now you've got a means of collecting information. So that has to mean your front end is not decentralized. Okay, decentralized front end, you couldn't do it. So you've now, you've guaranteed a centralized front end. If you've guaranteed a centralized front end, you've guaranteed OFAC obligations uh, apply to you, whereas you could argue that they don't otherwise. So I would first argue that um, that is, bad <laughs> um, for, for exactly that reason, which is that um, you now have those obligations that you didn't have. Second of all, you start introducing more levels of centralization. Um, I, don't, I don't know what other example you want to argue. Um, it, it doesn't really matter. You, 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 introduce, um, you introduce a very small multi-sig where you allow people to exchange crypto in it. Okay, well, you've just created something that is probably a financial institution under the Bank Secrecy Act, and therefore subject to the obligations of the Bank Secrecy Act. And therefore, you need to do full KYC, AML, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so you've literally just killed the composability of your protocol. No more composability, therefore no more integrations that otherwise would have existed, right? So Uniswap is an easy example of this. If Uniswap were to actually do something like that and introduce KYC on the protocol level, um, they've just introduced centralization 
um, there's a very good chance that they go from being not a financial institution under the Bank Secrecy Act to being a financial institution under the Bank Secrecy Act. Now they've introduced new obligations for themselves. They no longer can get the two to 300 different uh, integrations that happen solely because of the open source nature of the protocol. No, instead, everybody needs to come to them and ask permission to actually be part of this protocol. You've just slowed down growth by 10x. And you can continue to walk through it. They create other centralized components. Okay, now you have an issue where you are going to be an exchange under the Exchange Act. Every time you introduce a point of centralization and compliance, you are probably bringing new laws in that otherwise would not have applied to you. And then you bring in, when you start bringing in things like securities laws, there is no way to even comply with them right now. Why would you ever go down the path of creating a exchange where you can't comply? Like, you know that within like a few years, there's going to be some law around tokens. And there's like a 50% chance that that law makes way more number like tokens securities. And if you have any centralized component of your protocol at that point, you've basically lost any argument that that uh, is not governed by the Securities Exchange Act. And now you have all of these obligations. You can't win that argument against the SEC or in court. You've lost. Like you... You will not win with a centralized DeFi protocol over time. I just, I just don't believe it. You're not going to beat the others at all. You will lose. You will end up being subject to way more laws than you ever thought. Like it, it's just a terrible path. I mean, maybe, maybe some people sneak through in the next couple years until like regulators like catch up. But at a certain point, like DeFi is going to be like the decentralized protocols that don't have these compliance layers and things like that will win because all the other ones are going to be subject to layers and layers of obligations, which are going to be expensive, kill composability, kill the permissionless nature of it all, and they'll lose. So you know how you know how there's some theme parks you can go to and you have to pay for every ride you, you go on? You have to, you know, you, you have to buy tickets maybe and you give the tickets at the, I hate those kind. You know, you might see them on a boardwalk or something like that. Or yeah, that's now compare that to like a Disney world where you pay one time at the gate, you get in, you can ride any ride. There's 50, a hundred rides. You're free once you're inside the gate. Okay. So this is my fear with DeFi. My fear is that with layer twos, especially that are being pushed hard uh, like Arbitrum and Optimism, and they're getting investments, and they're they're part of por- uh, portfolios that are have very clear boundaries around them as far as the the properties in them and stuff like that. Um, I'm worried that we're going to see on chain potentially, potentially on chain KYC uh, on layer twos, where once you do it, you're in. Okay, and today we're in a situation where, okay, if I'm just KYC'd on Arbitrum, who cares? Like, you know, I can't do a whole ton there. I can't do anything on layer one. I can't do it. That could change really quickly. Okay, as time goes on, we're going to see, I believe, we're going to see individual layer twos for a number of different um, sort of theme parks. Think of it like, like sort of blockchain theme parks or... Um, we might even see them in sort sort of bloom up out of centralized entities that exist today. You know, if we see like JP Morgan or we see Citibank or 
um, even like a Robin Hood or something um, getting involved in this space, they're probably going to have their own layer two um, that you have to register on. DYDX is in the same boat right now, but that could change. So that's one thing that's very concerning to me that I think would add the regulation and the anti-privacy stuff uh, while preserving the composability and preserving the um, permissionlessness because you can still build within there. You know, maybe there's a way to register to build, but you're in. Um, so that's number one. Obviously, it wouldn't be as strong as it is today, but it would still exist. The other thing is, you know, when you look at like what Aave's doing and what Uniswap's thinking of doing for institutional uh, stuff, they're working with third-party companies that are doing the KYC, you know, and these third-party companies, some of them are thinking about this sort of decentralized identity type of way of doing business where you have a stamp from Fireblocks or whatever that says you are KYC, it expires on this date. None of your information is actually there, but they have attested and they're a trusted expert that says this person has been KYC, their information's on file, their Ethereum address is 0x blah, blah, blah. Okay, and this address is qualified to enter your L2 or enter your app or enter your whatever uh, and use it legally. That's the kind of stuff I'm worried about because you register this address once, you can use it everywhere, you know, and uh, whether it's within an L2 or with like a Fireblocks type of group that then registers you for all DeFi, that's the kind of stuff that a regulator, if a regulator is listening to this right now and getting any ideas, um, you know, just send me the check in the mail. But is that how government works? But um you know, that's the kind of stuff that's realistic. It's not unrealistic to think that this stuff is going to happen. And these are the types of compromises that I am really concerned about because here's the, the other side of it, and then I'll let you comment. The other side of it is people would be like, well, that would no, there's no way users would let this happen. There's no way that this, you know, especially when you're talking about decentralized governance, there's no way that people would vote for this. I think that's nonsense because the incentive of every governance token holder is to have the price of the token go up. That's why most people hold the token. That's the way most, most people vote. So if you're, if you're holding an Aave token and it's okay, comply by making sure every Aave user is registered with Fireblocks, KYC, or get shut down and your token becomes worthless, <laughs> they're going to vote for the thing that's going to give them more, more uh, profit. Uh, so I don't think that that argument holds water at all. I think the incentives are there for every single DeFi project to ultimately have to comply in some way. It's just a matter of where that line is drawn, you know, but the incentive exists. So I, I totally agree with you. Um, that That is 100% accurate. I think the question is what wins out though, right? So that's going to exist. It's going to continue to grow. <laughs> um, there's more and more companies that like try to pitch this idea of like decentralized KYC in some way. Um, that, so that, that's not going to go away, and it's going to continue to grow. And you're right. The question is like, but does it does it win? Where does it stop? And I think there's there's two points that I'd say on it. I'd say the first one is, um, I, I think you're somewhat. Uh, assuming that from a regulatory perspective, what they're doing works and that it'll continue to work. 
And I'm not talking about like any specific example, but like if you talk about like, I don't know, that kind of thing on like Uniswap, like we, we've basically just created, it's kind of the point that I said earlier, which is the SEC is no longer going to look at that and say, oh, there's a decentralized exchange. Huh? We have a really tough argument on whether to win this or not. No, you are going to, why? Because the second you have the KYC, you have the obligation to remove people from the system as well. You have to, right? That, that like has to exist. If you have to remove somebody from the system, it means you have to have centralized control over the system. If you have centralized control over an exchange, for example, that exchange is going to be subject to the Exchange Act rules. It is. Now, yeah, like I said, some are going to sneak in. Will we see this for the next year or two years or three years or four years or five years? Yeah, because the SEC is slow and it doesn't have the resources to like keep up with this. But eventually, are they going to be like in trouble because they did not register as an exchange? Yeah. And if they want to register an exchange, can they? No. So that's like the first point that I'd say is like, you have to give it more time for the regulators to catch up. Not that like we like having the regulators around. I'm just telling you like how it's going to work. I, I think the second point is that like, even if that doesn't happen, the efficiency of DeFi is something that like, I don't think you can ignore in terms of what's going to win. That doesn't mean we don't have these bifurcated two, two systems, but like if you take a, a lending protocol and you, we like walk through what things look like, you create a permissionless pool. Okay. So basically what you've just done is you just split liquidity, liquidity across a permissioned and a permissionless pool. Okay. So that's just like literally worse just from like objectively speaking, that is worse than one pool of assets. Like nobody wants that. Um, but now you also have one pool that is um, a pool that has certain uncertainty that lives in it. And then you've got another pool where you actually have certainty. So what's the one pool that has uncertainty? Well, it's the pool where you've got people who, um, can remove somebody from a system. So somebody's providing 90% liquidity and they get added to the OFAC sanction list. Now, whoever it is that has some key to remove them, removes them from there, there goes 90% liquidity, um, like forced out of there with no warning to anybody by a centralized group of people acting together. Um, that's like the easy example that I always point to. I, I can like rack my brain to like keep walking through examples that make the products like objectively just worse um, than the default, the decentralized version of it. And so like, I think there's an argument to say that like leaving the regulatory arguments, which I think are really the death knell of it anyway, uh, out of it. I think there's an argument that the decentralized version just wins anyway, because it's just going to be a better experience uh, and a better product for, for anybody that is like just more efficient, more cost effective than the other version. Um, I don't know whether I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Um, that in that world, you still have both existing, right? In the, in the regulatory world, you, you kill the non DeFi version of it and the permissioned version's gone and you only have the permissionless version, which is, which is great. But I, I think either of those two scenarios are like possible and, put an end or minimize the value of the permissioned ones anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the question to me is, is, is where's the compromise going to be made? Because we know there's going to be a compromise made. We know that things are not going to continue as they are. We just know that we know that Uniswap is not going to continue to be able to do what it's doing forever. We know that regulators are eyeballing it 
We know things are going to change. The question is, how are they going to change? And whose interests are they going to change? How will users be protected in that process? You know, and how will our 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 interests be represented? You know, so that goes back to the core of like this whole conversation. You know, it's like who's sticking up for the little guy um, in that regard. You know, we don't have like pro. Um, there's nobody in Congress who's pro crypto user. There's no Bernie Sanders of crypto in Congress, right? As opposed to crypto industry, we're not mature enough yet. We don't have it. You know, so um, I hear what you're saying, but uh, I'm still like, I'm still skeptical. But well, we started like, to talk I about disagree with you as to like the risk and likelihood of things happening. I'm, I'm giving you like the counter argument that I think is like very viable. It doesn't destroy like your concern and eliminate it. Um, I think it might minimize it and always give alternative options, which I think is frankly very important in a world where you assume that like not enough people care about their privacy and people want money. Like you have to have alternative options that are viable and that are, can be big. And I think those will um, always exist. And I think there's a world in which they actually grow to be bigger because they're better. Right. Yeah. And, and by the way, I want to caveat like this whole conversation and saying that I absolutely hate that we even have to have this conversation. I hate that that this stuff is possible in DeFi. I hate that we're not at a state where we're already fully trustless and unstoppable, you know? And I do think that the reason that Bitcoin was able to get to where it's at um, is because it flew under the radar for many, many, many years, you know, we're like, what, like seven, eight years before it even really got looked at in any serious way. Whereas DeFi, especially the bulk of what we're talking about here is really like less than two years old for the most part, two, two to two and a half years old, most of it. Um, so I, I really question, I, I do think that uh, not enough time has gone by to protect DeFi in the way that like Bitcoin was protected, but also Bitcoin never had an admin key. Bitcoin never had a DAO. Bitcoin never had any type of um, um, like poison pill, so to speak, right? It never had a way to be shut down um, after it started to permissionlessly decentralize its security. The opposite of what we're dealing with today. We're, DeFi is coming at it from the other direction. It's the exact opposite of Bitcoin. Whereas most of these DeFi projects do have poison pills. They can kill themselves if they want. They can be killed. Um, so this is my fear. Can we jump uh, to admin keys for a second? Sure. And then we'll get to DeFi education fund yep. after that. Yeah, that's right. We're supposed to go. You want to go there first? We can go there first. Well, go ahead. You're thinking about admin keys. So, you know, I think the the admin keys thing point that you bring up is, I mean, obviously you've talked about it a lot, is, is interesting. And, and just the general point regarding Bitcoin. I think the one thing like with DeFi that's really tricky is like complexity relative to Bitcoin, right? It's like you're, you're talking about one system that's like just, you know, transfer this to here. And you've got another one that's got like all of these components to it. And so there's this really interesting question that like, maybe I should premise this by saying like, there's, there's probably nobody that tells um, companies to get rid of admin keys as aggressively as I do um, as a lawyer. Like I don't, they're just, they're just points of risk when it, from a regulatory perspective. Like if I just purely look at it from that perspective, every time there's an admin key, 
there is a regulatory risk and therefore you shouldn't have them. <laughs> it's like literally that simple. Um, I don't even have to think about it from a decentralization perspective, which is obvious that they're bad, right? Um, but, you know, the, the response that I get, which is a, a, just a completely valid one, is like, whether we get there eventually or not from a tech perspective, we're definitely not there in terms of being able to eliminate all admin keys. Like there's, there's the easy admin keys that should be eliminated, right? Like this admin key that's like three people holding these funds. Like that's just ridiculous. <laughs> like, like get, get rid of it. Um, there's, but, but I'm talking about like control over certain governance functions, like meaningful, like changes to interest rates, for example, and, and things like that, or like changes to interest rate ceilings and floors and, and things like that. And like, like you could see a world in which like we get to a point where we figure out how to like automate this, like a change in the ceiling, but like the change in the ceiling needs to be relative to other DeFi protocols. Like I can remember back in the day when, uh, I don't know, a few years ago when like, uh, makers interest rate ceiling was one thing like for die and then like uh, compound, it was another one. And it created like really problematic dynamics between the two. I, I can't remember the exact details where, where the compound uh, die interest rate ceiling ended up getting like increased to the same amount as like maker. I don't think we're at a point where we can eliminate that kind of admin key yet, which is not good, right? Because like you don't want people actually making those decisions. Um, so there's this part of me that like struggles because I really want all admin keys gone. But then there's another part of me that like recognizes that like, I don't think we're there yet. And I think we do need to have, I think we need to keep pushing it hard. Like, I think it's, I think it's good, frankly, that you push the admin, like no admin key narrative or, or the risks of admin key things. Like, um, I think that's good. I, I just don't think we can, I don't think it's realistic to just get rid of them right now. Well, there's two sides to it. One is the security of the funds. You know, and those are the ones that I focus on mostly is are your funds that you deposited into this DeFi application dependent on the security and integrity of this admin key? Uh, can they, worst case, just withdraw the funds and leave? Can they make changes to the application that would result in your funds being exploited or stolen or you know, can they change an Oracle? Can they do other things that we're not thinking of? What you're talking about on the other side is how admin keys create regulatory risk. And they can create regulatory risk in the way I just mentioned, but they can also create risk if exchange functions are maintained by the team, right? If they can use the admin key to do change interest rates and do things that are critical to the, to the product, then it gives them control centralized control over certain aspects of what's happening. The problem is most of the time when they maintain those functions, they're not just facing the regulatory risk, they're also putting users' funds at stake mm -hmm. because those controls they want to hang on to for technical reasons can be used and have been used to maliciously attack funds, to freeze funds, and also it leaves them open to a regulatory attack where funds could be attacked through a request from some agency somewhere, you know? So, and we talked about this a lot with um, like, even not just with applications, but with chains like Polygon, 
you know, where there's still a multi-sig, there's still an, a company and it's incorporated in a bunch of countries now and they probably improved the situation. But when we first started bringing it up, it was an Indian company. And that same week we brought it up, India was cracking down on crypto and there's a multi-sig. If the Indian government knew what the hell a multi-sig was, they would have cracked down that week. <laughs> you know, so like that crackdown could have frozen billion dollar in funds. You know, it's like a lot of the stuff just isn't happening right now because the governments aren't educated enough and it's not a good reason for us to be doing things the way we're doing. But so that's the way I look at it. There's those two risks, but usually if you have the second risk, you also have the first risk. So that, 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 and I told, I've talked to many developers and many teams they want that they you almost always want to keep the control the multi sig or whatever it is because they don't have enough faith in the in the code and in the the uh, variables that come along with being part of a permissionless system they don't have enough faith in it to fully trust it with people's money that's what it boils down to but at the same time they're pumping it to the moon and asking people to to put billions of dollars into that code so my case has always been, if you don't have the faith in the code to get rid of that key, then you need to limit the deposits. You need to, you can't have a $3 billion TVL and not have faith in your code to burn your key. If you do, you're a, you're a fraud. You're a fraud. That That's really how I look at it. But can we focus just for one second? Because I, I, I do, do want to get your perspective on this part. It's like... So the, the multi-sigs are, are easy. Like, I don't even think it's like worth talking about those. Like, we agree it's simple. Like, that's a problem. I, I think like the freezing the protocol because you're worried and not, don't trust the code. Like, I get why devs feel that way, like whatever, but like it still creates that risk. So I agree with you. I, I think the more interesting one is the one that still creates the risk and I agree with you, but like, I don't think we actually can solve right now, which is the interest rate ceiling that I just said. So for example, the risk, as as you would say, is, well, we know a user has funds in this pool. We don't like that user. So we, as like the DAO or multi-sig holders, are going to like reduce the interest rate to like zero and basically screw everyone in that market. Well, dumb example, but like doable, right? Um, so that's like downside of that multi-sig. But I guess the question of, it, like of that admin key, the question is like, but that we're not at a point where that thing can properly function as the example I gave you between like maker and, and compound without that admin key, because um, not because the system's broken, right? Like just because it is a complex system and like interest rates might skyrocket somewhere else. And so it's, it creates like weird incentives, for example, that like isn't broken, but like isn't good within like another protocol. And so like you would want that to be changed. And obviously you don't want that by a centralized team. So like the bigger the group, the better. But do you think like, do you think something like Compound and Aave, assuming that, let's just assume in a world where that was the only multi-sig that existed, like the only admin key that existed. Like, I mean, would you agree that that, that should exist, right? Like that's a good thing that those exist. We want to figure out how to get rid of that admin key, but isn't it okay that it exists right now as we're like trying to figure out how do you actually like automate interest rates by looking at other protocols at all as well in the ecosystem to make sure that like everything's working? Or would you say like we're better off having it not exist and, and limiting the TVL in like those protocols because of that one admin key too? I, I like literally don't have an answer to this. I'm like actually curious. Well, the the you function know. you're talking about wouldn't necessarily put users' funds at risk, right? 
Well, it doesn't actually put the user funds, but it allows you to target users, right? So like users funds, yeah, you can never take their funds, right? It's totally non-custodial. That's the interesting part, right? Like admin keys that that don't affect the custodial nature of the funds. Like, right. It would just affect the, the the features of the application. It would affect the variables yeah, but that like, you're adjust in, interest rates. If I put funds in compound, I, I like I don't look at that thing for like days or weeks or whatever, right? And if somebody mm-hmm. like wants to target me and say like I'm going to decrease the interest rate ceiling to zero so that Mark can earn no interest in that pro- in that market for some period of time, like I'm not going to know it's knowing. There's but that's not security. That's that's just you're getting screwed by the by the application, but you're not losing your principal to a hacker or anything like that. Now if they could. If they could increase your interest to a hundred percent a day, and your funds are gone by tomorrow, that's a different story, and that's that's the security of your funds being affected and targeted. So, yeah, in that case, that's something I would definitely. If you could reduce the interest rate to zero, um, no, I don't think that's a problem. I don't care. Who cares? You're not getting interest. I don't care. You can get your money back if you can increase interest rate to a hundred percent a day. And all of a sudden you're screwed because somebody decided, or that even if a DAO votes to target one person, one Ethereum address, and drain their funds within a day without notifying them because they're not paying attention, then that's a huge problem. <laughs> because the problem is, the bigger problem is that a regulator could could say, target this address, increase the interest rate. I want their funds gone by, you know, in one hour. Boom, done. Okay, agree. So let's go DeFi Education Fund. And if we could leave like somehow like a few minutes at the end for a few like things I'd love to chat about, like how you look at things specific to you and incentives, I'd love to. Sure. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Um, okay, so DeFi Education Fund, for those who don't know, was founded last year, I believe. Was it 2021 or 2020? I forgot. Yeah. Everything's blending together for the past two years. Sometime middle of last uh, year. <clears throat> so it was proposed uh, to uni governance. It was voted in uh, a $20 million in uni at the time, Twenty million, I think it was $20 million at the time, in uni tokens allocated to a fund with seven members who are on a multi-sig, and they're using those funds to, um, in their words, um, Actually, what is the mission in oh here to educate policymakers around the world about DeFi and advocate for policies welcoming of DeFi and decentralized governance? Um, so can I just hit you with a few questions? Sure. Okay. Um, um, who invited you to be one of the seven members? One of the committee members. One of the other committee members. Correct. Does do you know how the so the the this was all part of a decentralized governance process, which was my which is why I scrutinized it so much. If you go to defiwatch.net, you can find some letters that I wrote um, with a lot of specific questions about the way this went down. So it was proposed by Harvard University's blockchain uh, organization. I forgot the exact name of it. So they proposed it to uni governance, the decentralized governance community. The proposal was very detailed. Um, It had all seven committee members named. It had a full rundown of what this thing was going to do. It had a different name at first, and then it was tweaked later because it was bad marketing, I guess. 
Um, no, governance requested it. Governance requested it. Okay. Well, whatever it was. Um, but it was fully flushed out. Okay. It had the members, you, uh, Jake from Compound, um, Rebecca from Ave, um, Marvin, Marvin, Martin. Marvin, yeah. Marvin from Uniswap. Um, uh, I'm leaving people off. Larry, um, Katie, and Sheila. Right. Larry, Katie, and Sheila from the World Economic Forum. Um, who put together this roster? Like, how was this? This wasn't obviously put together by governance, the list of seven. Uh, was it Harvard, to the best of your knowledge, that decided on how this would look? Or, and, and spoiler alert, I know the answer to this question. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the answer, so you'll have to tell me. <laughs> I literally okay. don't. Okay. So Harvard put the proposal forth claiming to have written it themselves, claiming to have put the whole thing together. They had a lot of guidance on that. Okay, they had a lot of guidance on that from centralized actors who are very interested in Uniswap and um, seeing Uniswap succeed in the long term. Okay, so the idea that, um, and I'll go as far as to say from the company Uniswap, okay, the idea originated, um, I believe, I believe, this is my personal belief, that the idea originated within the company Uniswap. And that that idea was somehow transmitted uh, and uh, suggested to a delegate of Andreessen Horowitz, who's a major shareholder in Uniswap. Um, they uh, Andreessen has gone on record in saying they delegated a lot of their uni votes out to universities and uh, other DeFi applications. You know, they they partially reveal who all of their delegates are, but they you know Harvard is is one of them. So Harvard, the, the seed is planted with Harvard's Blockchain Institute. I don't know the answer to how all seven committee members were picked, um, but no, I, I do know that there was direction given from centralized entities involved with Uniswap. Okay, it did not, it definitely did not come from Uniswap's decentralized governance uh, ecosystem. So the proposal was written Proposed, you know, it was proposed with votes that were allocated to Harvard by Andreessen. Uh, it was proposed, and then it was voted on, and it was voted yes, as as it was with all seven committee members. Despite, you know, and I, I'm saying a lot, you'll have a chance. Despite requests, really, really detailed, well thought out, verbose requests, multi page letters. Uh, threads and message forums, requests to discuss who's on the committee, to get the reasoning for it, to understand how it was put together, to understand if there was other information that was made available to the company that was not being shared with governance as far as like potential regulation, potential things they've heard, why is this happening now? Um, all of that was ignored, roundly ignored. Um a lot of it came from me, but not just me. Uh, and then Andreessen's delegates put the votes forward to push the thing through, as is, with the seven committee members as proposed and all the 
the the amounts and the details. We tried to get the amount lowered, you know. So um, do you think that this was done in a decentralized way? Hmm, it's a good question. Do I think it was done in a decentralized way? It all depends on whether I think your assumptions are right or not. <laughs> Which one? Which one do you question? Is it a decentralized? So there's a, there's a few parts of it. So one is like, how was it actually conceived and, and how did it come up? Right. And like, I don't know what the answer to that is. Right. But if it came like, if it was conceived in like a centralized way, then that makes it like less, like a lot less decentralized. Although like a lot of things in governance come from like a centralized party, but then get taken over essentially by governance. Well, like everything does, but some even comes from like the core team and then gets taken over. Um, but that's different from being like pushed by the core team. So like, if that's accurate, then yeah, that like t- definitely is like the source of it is, is like a centralized way. So that's like the first point. Then you get to the second point, which is like um, who actually, so once it's put, once it's contemplated, who actually like puts it together, revises it and stuff. Like I have like slightly more information on that, which is like I reviewed what was being said and what, like I, res- I responded to stuff like in the forums and stuff where like I thought that it should be responded to. I can't remember like what it was like. And there's like a few determinants that like I personally made, which was like from my time perspective and like the impact that I thought we could make, was it like, would I have wanted to be part of it if it was like a lot smaller? No, it would have, it wouldn't, it would have been useless. Like it wouldn't do anything. So like I, I wouldn't have been part of it. Um, would, um, uh, did I think like somebody should be hired for it? So I'm trying to like remember some of it. Should I think somebody should be hired independently for it? Like I definitely supported that um, concept. So like um, how it like changed and evolved. Like I know like I definitely had some say in that because like I just said like I wouldn't be part of a committee that did that. And I definitely said like I think we need to, we definitely need to hire somebody <laughs> to run this because like we don't have the time to do it. Um, but like other than that, like, who decided like what to accept and not to accept. I, I, I couldn't tell you that other than like me sharing my views on it. Um, mm-hmm. as you can see in the form. And then the last part is like who actually approved it. I think this is like the most contentious and interesting part of it because I can only work with what I know publicly and what I know publicly or in privately, what I know like based on public information is that A16Z, assuming it used the same agreements as it like put out publicly as like form agreements for delegation, assuming those are the agreements that they used with like the Harvard blockchain club and whoever else, they could, they couldn't have actively influenced it. I think their agreement, if I recall properly, says something like you'll independently make your decisions and we won't be involved. I think they do. I don't dispute that. They don't don't want to be. I don't dispute Um, that. So then the question's like, do is the Harvard Blockchain Club by default because they were chosen by A16Z, an extension of A16Z? And like, like I don't know that is answer because I could argue both ways, right? Like on, on the one hand, of course A16Z gave it to an organization that they thought wouldn't screw things up. Um did they think that some a group of students has like the same views on as them? Think about it this way. I don't know. We're going through. We're going through in the U.S. a Supreme Court justice retiring and um, stepping down, 
and a new one needs to be nominated. The party that's in power is going to put up a nominee who is going to who they they know once the nominee's on the bench, they can't call them up and be like, "Hey, you got to do this. You got to do this." They know that. They want to put somebody in that position who they believe already is in a principled way on the same wavelength with them and that is probably going to act in a certain way. Now, sometimes they're disappointed. Sometimes the justices act in a different way. They, they don't always go down the party lines, but they have to make the best decision they can at that time for who they think is going to further their principles. A16Z is a great example of a venture capital firm that is politically progressive, uh, publicly, that supports progressive um, you know, sort of ideology out there in the world, partners up with organizations like the World Economic Forum, for instance, publicly, this is all public stuff, um, that is not, I would have been shocked if A16Z had started delegating any of their voting power to um, sort of like um, conservative, uh, libertarian, sort of anti- um, uh, you know, or, or let's say Bitcoin maximalists or something like that. It's like, you know, it's like they wanted to choose uh, people and organizations that were already thinking in a progressive way, that were already on the same page with them, that already saw the future of DeFi in a specific way that matches up with their vision. So I don't accuse them of actively going out and pounding people and telling them to do this. But I think that it was it was sort of determined when those delegations were made. Yeah, and I think honestly that that's very possible. Like, I, I would I'd be surprised if they picked somebody who they thought had a different worldview. I don't know how much diligence they do on like specifically that issue. But like, yeah, I'd be like very surprised if like they were giving it to an organization that had like opposing views to them on on DeFi. So like, there, there's okay. like no doubt about that. And you see, you see the. Um, the fact that almost all the top voters for the proposal were their delegates, you can see how them choosing those delegates for the reasons I just said could be seen as a controlling influence over the governance process, right? Do we agree on that? I, I think I, I would say like the, I think what you're trying to convey, I agree with. I don't think I agree with actually those exact words. So that that they don't would, get all lawyerly on me now. No, no, no. But I think it's really important, right? Because if they <laughs> if we say they controlled the process, that like implies that they were like actively actually like doing something to in the process. I, I think them. Your point, I think that I'm as I'm understanding is like they picked people who they thought had certain views, and thus when they vote, they should vote together for a certain type of proposal that would be consistent with A16Z's view. And, and that has to be like what you mean. And like, mm -hmm. um, if we follow like the discussion that we just had on like, that's how they go about picking um, uh, delegates, like assuming that's accurate, then those delegates should often vote as a block if they have like the same views on issues. So like, yeah, that that's like that logic follows. Um, okay, but I think it's that's very very different in my opinion from 
Well, it's 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 go back to the Supreme Court thing, right? It's the same kind of thing where they put somebody on the bench that that ideologically makes sense, you know. And as time goes by, they don't know how they're gonna decide on cases. They don't know how it's gonna go. They just hope for the best, right? But they're making that decision that at the point. Agreed. Yeah, we agree. At the that. point of the nomination, they have to do the best they can to think farther down the road. At the point of the delegation of governance power. They have to imagine, okay, here's how we think this is going to go. A university organization is pretty safe bet to, if you're looking for a sort of a progressive tech forward, um, sort of, um, um, I don't want to say like left wing, but like it kind of is considered that, sure. you know, a way of thinking. So it makes sense that, so that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying A16Z controlled the okay. exact vote. In that case, okay. we're on the same page there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then to take it another step, if they did have that sort of indirect influence over the proposal and the vote and the, the proposal itself and what it looked like, it goes, the, you know, the next step there is to think they had some influence over who was chosen to be on the committee. The people on the committee, um, <laughs> the people on the committee are making decisions about how the funds are spent. Okay, the people on the committee have a lot in common with one another as far as their trade, their affiliations, um, their point of view. Uh, so, you know, there's there. I'm not on the committee, right? I wouldn't make sense on the committee. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a part of the, you know, a, a team somewhere, a company. Um, so where I'm going with that is that was why before the thing was voted on, I wanted to have conversations about why these seven people were chosen. And it was never meant to be a character offense against anybody or calling anybody a cheater. Um, but when I see, okay, the top DeFi projects have their lawyers here. I see um, World Economic Forum, which is an organization that I am not politically aligned with and I think is a very, very, very political organization. Um, there's varying opinions about that. Within the tech sphere, the World Economic Forum is just like a given, right? It's like, it's there. It's great. Within a greater global sphere, it is a very progressive political organization. So seeing them on this committee is what really tipped me off and made me realize, wow, okay, we're dealing with a stacked deck here. And the fact that nobody would talk about it, nobody would compromise on who was on the committee specifically, um, despite many, many public requests, told me that this is, the, this is how it's going to go. This is how it's going to go. We're going to vote this into existence indirectly through our delegations. And you're going to get the committee members we want, and you're going to get the amount we want. And this is going to be basically a slush fund that's meant to further our interests, not users' interests. Because remember, as much of a jerk as I am, I'm a user. And there's many people like me out there you know, that are, that are invested in this whole thing. So um, that was my take on it. What do you think about that? I think there's like some right conclusions and then maybe some leaps too far. So like right conclusions, things like uh, lawyers that are like all aligned and they view things like, yeah, I've like worked with. Rebecca. I just said a lot in common. A lot, okay. in common. a lot in common. And frankly, I mean, I've worked a lot with Jake. I've worked a lot with Rebecca. Like, yeah, let me 
we, we have a lot in common and a lot of views that are, that are consistent. So like, I think like that's accurate. When, when I think through like the logic that A16Z picked people roughly based on how they thought that they would come out. I'm not accusing them either of handpicking people. No, 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 no. I'm I, saying, I mean, I mean the, the block, I mean the delegates, sorry. Like they picked the delegates. Based oh, they definitely picked the delegates. Right, right. Yeah. And then, um, the delegates picked, uh, the committee members. I mean, obviously they had, I don't know if I believe that. Yeah. I, I don't, I was going to say like, I'm not sure that that's right. So like, I mean, um, what, what I've heard multiple times is that people were recruited in by other committee members. So I'm, somebody had to be first. Okay. Yeah. And then that, per- so somebody was chosen by somebody to be first. Somebody yeah. was chosen. We don't know who was chosen by who to be first. Nobody wants to say for some reason, but odds are somebody on the committee was chosen by either Uniswap or Andreessen. Odds are, I don't know. This is not an allegation. I'm just saying that's the best chance because somebody was chosen by somebody and it probably wasn't by Harvard, but I don't know for sure. So with that in mind, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm not accusing yeah. them of handpicking each person. No, no, that's right. But I'm just kind of like walk through the logic. It's like when you get to the end point of like getting these committee members who are going to further interests of, of Andreessen, it's like, it's like they knew like th- there's so many steps there that they would have to foresee happening in that way. And, and they're not even right. I mean, I want, we, we need to get to this point because they're not even right. Like <laughs> I do not help. Andreessen, like they, they probably don't want me on that committee. Like I, I would not be a good person to help A16Z's interests on that committee, right? Like, and I, I definitely know others on the committee who are not fans. Actually, I know several <laughs> who are not fans <laughs> of Andreessen. Um, and so, to to me, it's like that's why it's so, it's frankly so wrong to think that. Because the people on the committee are not people who are necessarily supportive. And don't get me wrong. Like, I don't dislike well, A16. I know people there. Like, I, 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 did, like, I don't support their, like, position. Is A16Z a shareholder in DYDX? Yeah. They've invested in DYDX. Correct. They've invested in many of the companies who are represented on the committee. Correct. So there is a tie. There is a financial incentive to, I mean, to say we don't like them or we stand against them or whatever. But at the end of the day, when you're getting paid a lot of money by a company, and this is what I said on Twitter and you took it as a character attack. Well, I didn't, by the way, I never said it was a character attack. Others said it was a character attack. I no okay. point in that Twitter thread, you see me <laughs> saying it was a character attack. Well, my I only can't. point was if you're getting paid by somebody which I am not, just so you know, if you want to get to that, I am not. I'm not making a dime right now. Okay, for this exact reason, I made a, I made a point of this and it's been going on for way longer than I thought it would, unfortunately. Um, but if you're getting paid by somebody, you are incentivized to support their interests. If you're getting paid by a company, you're incentivized to, to uh, use whatever tools you have to support their interests. And A16Z being an investor in those companies and dictating indirectly how this thing went down and making, you know, doing, making sure they had an ideologically matching delegates, ideologically matching committee members. um, That is sort of 
you know, all in the same vein where the incentives are, are making the world go around. That's my yeah, point. Like, but, but, but we, can we walk through that one? Like first, like, of course I, I like so strongly disagree with that, but I can only speak from, from my perspective. And it's why, like, I think I so agree with you on looking at financial uh, incentives, but like, I think you need to truly understand the financial incentives when, when, when knowing them. And like, so here's, so A16Z invested in, in DYDX. So in what situations would I like be beholden to A16Z effectively, like as a practical matter? Um, one would be um, if we are low on cash and therefore may need to rely on them raising, fu- raising funds from them again. That, that's just not even close to the case for, for DYDX. Like we don't, we don't need to raise money from VCs. Like no, that. I think you're missing my point. My um, point is, my point is not that you're going to go out of your way to help A16Z directly. My point is you're getting paid by DYDX to do a job. So therefore you're going to do, use your superpowers to help DYDX. If DYDX does well, A16Z does well. That's my point. But isn't so, that, that's, but that's indirectly saying I'm incentivized. I mean, cause that is what you're saying, right? I'm incentivized to make sure A16Z does well. But not directly. Your incentivize your focus, I assume, as a full time employee and general counsel, is to make sure DYDX does well, right? Yes. And that's why you're on that committee. You're on that committee because you want to support your employer. You're on that committee because you work at DYDX, most likely. No, I, I, not except I would have been on that committee if I had never gone to DYDX. Like I, I'd be on that committee because I've worked with more DeFi companies than anyone else in the space. <laughs> Literally, um, I I have thought about these issues like night and day for like what two and a half years now, just in DeFi and, and crypto. Before that, I no, it's like that. That's like literally all I've been doing and thinking about. I the the, the thing that I'm understanding is like the implication is that like so. Let's assume like I think your implication is that what you're implying is that when putting out policy positions, I'm going to intentionally or unintentionally put out policy positions that assist, that help A16Z and other VCs. And that's okay. Is that my, my contention is you're going to put out policy positions that support your employer, okay. regardless of who their shareholders are. Okay. Not a A16Z is going to benefit if DYDX does well in the long term and the short term. Uh, I'm not saying you're ignoring DYDX and just helping A16Z. I'm saying your job is to make DYDX go to the moon uh, or, you know, be, you know, seen favorably by regulators uh, and to have regulation that supports your business objectives. And if you are successful in that mission, a16Z gets a favorable return on their investment. Okay. So so that's it- interesting because I may have always misunderstood what you said. Because when you convey it, the way I always understood it was that I had some incentive because they're an investor to directly care for A16Z's interests. And like I can say that I, I really don't have any reason to directly care for A16Z's interest. If your point is, which, it, which you just said, is that I have an interest in caring about DYDX's interest, which by default helps A16Z. That is, of course, like an accurate statement. 
what what I what I would say though then is then the question is is caring about DYDX's interest in the policy arena um, uh, bad or good to DeFi? Like that's really the question that matters actually. Like A16Z irrelevant. Is me caring about DYDX good or bad for DeFi from a policy perspective? And if we like backtrack to like the beginning of this conversation, while there could be a world in which it would be different, right? There could be a world in which, and, and, and that this would be a totally different conversation, in which GYDX wanted to be a centralized entity um, and operate a ton, like a centralized exchange down the road. Um, in, in that scenario, like I'd have incentives very similar to like, you know, Coinbase policy people and things like that. It just happens not by luck. I mean, it's why I'm at DYDX, that we're, we want a completely decentralized protocol. Well, when I think about like policy and I think about like um, what we want to push, there's like nothing we want to push more than policies that support completely decentralized protocols. Not, not completely decentralized protocols with permissioned front ends, not semi-decentralized protocols, completely decentralized protocols. I don't know that, like, I don't know why we'd want to support anything different in DeFi. And my only incentive for DYDX, given that that's literally what DYDX is, is building, is to push that. And while right. I will say that, that, like, I don't only look out for DYDX's interests anyway, <laughs> for reasons I said earlier, even if they were, they entirely align with what we want for DeFi. What we want. What, what literally, when I say what we want, is I actually. Who's we? Um, you and me and users, which is, how do you know that? Do you really truly think that DYDX's business objectives a hundred percent align with what I want for DeFi? You come on, <laughs> you, you tell me you want a decentralized system where people care about user privacy and people have freedom, meaning it's permissionless and so decentralized. Um, that is exactly what we want. That sounds like a utopia, except at the end of the day, somebody's got to make money because of the way this was built, right? Sure. So that's where I go off the rails a little bit because when you have those profit motivations, you're going to have compromises being made. And I don't think we're going to reach the finish line of this thing in any sort of utopian state. We never do. When government's involved, utopia does not exist. And uh, that's my biggest concern. But this um, is actually the rare situation where government's actually helping that because you receive, you get to the utopia in a completely decentralized world, which the governments are forcing. And is in, if you're a DeFi protocol, that is what you want. Like, and, and you want that as well. Like, I know you want that. <laughs> I want that as well. That is what you want. I want decentralized, trustless, immutable financial tools. Thank you. I don't want anything that is compromised or is... Um, if there's any sort of, uh, compliance of any sort, I don't want it. I don't want it because Bitcoin didn't have any of it. Bitcoin did not comply, has not complied. The world changed around it. Yeah. The chances of that happening with mutable, um, um, flexible, pliant DeFi applications that can be changed either with admin keys, multi-sigs, governance, whatever, um, are slim. 
I think the chances of a safe harbor are slim. I think the chances that there will be, you know, uh, implications in the next couple of years are pretty high, you know, and I don't know that you guys can outrun them. I don't know. That's my big concern. I don't know if you can outrun them, but what I can say is that we need leverage. How do you, how do you get, so right, historically, like governments have leverage against, um, well, everybody, (laughs) they just do. How do you get rid of that leverage? The best way to get rid of that leverage is to create things that they can't stop. You don't necessarily have to go out of your way to create things they don't like that they can stop. By by like default, there's going to be some things that they don't like that they can stop. So you have to create things that they can't stop. And like mm-hmm. that that should be like frankly everybody's goal. And if you create something that they can't stop, by default you are creating the thing that you want. Because it is only once you create points of of things where they can stop you that you have the thing that you don't want. And so maybe for different reasons, although I'm not even sure because we probably actually align on more things than you think. But if I just simplify it to for regulatory reasons, I want the same thing as you because I don't actually believe, maybe you don't like, you you think otherwise, but like, I don't believe that we win the policy or regulatory battle by creating anything that is not trustless, decentralized. That's like, I agree. No, I believe that you believe that. I just don't believe that it's possible. So it might not be possible, but like if we go back to like the DeFi education fund and the policies we're putting forth together and all of that, like that, that is literally what is being pushed (laughs) because like, I'm not pushing anything else. Like there's no way I'm pushing anything else. I'm not incentivized financially to do otherwise. And I'm not incentivized uh, like personally to do otherwise. (laughs) Like that is what I'm pushing. And so like for me, it frankly is very frustrating. And you're not the only one. There's others who have like this VC narrative. Like maybe that narrative is right for many people. Like honestly, I, I don't know, but it's so not right for me that it is very frustrating because like, I 100% don't really care what the VCs want. And I know that like what DeFi should be is what I want. Trustless, permissionless, censorship resistant, decentralized, well, decentralized invokes all of those. Like that's what I want. I think the the what I laid out earlier, the scenario I was talking about with Andreessen in particular, with their indirect influence over how this committee came together. Um I think that leaves the door open for members of the committee not really seeing the full context as far as what was planned. You know, and the initial proposal was $40 million. I was just looking back. Um, you know, the committee members were obviously predefined. Do you happen to know why there was absolute like there was complete refusal to discuss with governance who the committee members would be? No. Every request was ignored. hundred no, percent. I like if I if I think of like it was not my role to do that. I was not proposing this. I was not advocating. I agreed to be on the committee. Period. I am very. You much, certainly could have supported the requests. The, yeah, but th- there's if you if I go ahead and support that request to basically say, hey, let's all have the conversation. Basically, what I'm doing is I'm embedding myself into the entire governance process. And I can tell you that, like, whether I'm right or wrong to do this, like, my view has been in all governance that I'm involved in, 
I do not embed myself into government governance processes at all. There's, there's frankly, regulatory reasons why I don't do that. Like me agreeing to be on the DeFi education fund was like a, a very rare circumstance where I thought that having a meaningful impact on DeFi in DC was like a really important thing for me to do. Otherwise, I don't engage at all in governance because I think there's way too many regulatory implications. With but DeFi. clearly, I mean, that's pretty implicit support in the process that was going on. If you agree to be on the committee, if you don't argue with the methods, if you don't want to participate, if you don't want to answer requests for conversation, you could have stepped off the committee if you disagreed. So clearly, that you're being there right now means, and everybody on the committee agreed with what was going on, agreed with the mandate that was being given, agreed with using uni treasury money to fund it, right? Which ultimately hurts the value of uni over a long period of time. Arguable, I know. We won't even, we don't need to get into that. You can disagree yeah. on that. I, mean, I, but, don't, um, I don't disagree with you. Like I impliedly agreed to that process. That's actually like a fair way of putting it. Like I definitely did that. Like why? I thought my me being on that committee was frankly like very important. That sounds like super arrogant, but I, I do think it is. I think I have a very and good- It shouldn't have been open to conversation. No, no, I don't. And I'm not saying that I, I agree with you that it shouldn't be open conversation. I'm saying like I implicitly applied because I wanted to be on that committee because I thought I would play an important role. Now I can, I can, I won't tell you who it was because I don't think it would be appropriate for that person, but I have definitely reached out to others who nobody, most other people wouldn't think would be appropriate for that committee to have on that committee because I thought it was appropriate to have that person on the committee. This is not during the process. This is like afterwards. That person ended up refusing to do it. My, my point in like, I am like more than happy to see like others be part of that, but I, I was not going to like give up my seat on playing an important role for DeFi because I think I play a good, important role for DeFi, frankly. Okay. Um, and we can wrap this up in a second as far as this part, but um, what I was saying earlier when I said you guys have a lot in common, you know, I wasn't saying like you have shared interests per se as far as personal things, right? It's more like, you know, you all have similar roles, most of you, um, for DeFi startups. Um, you have similar takes on how policy should look. You all want to see things go a certain way. Um, but I think that also extends, and this is really a big concern for me, this also extends to the, the ideology that comes along with being a part of the tech world these days. You know, and the, the overall technology industry Unfortunately, it's becoming a political kind of thing where we're seeing with big tech, we're seeing censorship, we're seeing all this stuff going on, whether or not you agree with all that, whatever, it doesn't matter. My point is, and I have an example of something, um, DeFi Education Fund makes grants to organizations or who- I know exactly what you're going to say. <laughs> they make grants uh, to organizations that they think can help DeFi. And these, you know, these organizations are specifically chosen to achieve a certain goal. Um, and they have a mission that they have to fulfill. And one of them is called Fight for the Future. And is that the one you thought I was going to talk about? Yeah. And the, okay. the rear, I can't remember what she said. So the founder um, of Fight for the Future, a few months, so they received a 
half million dollar grant approximately paid out over a period of many months to, um, let's see, their mission is to focus on DeFi advocacy, community mobilization, fight for a future where technology is a force for liberation, not oppression, and then apply that to DeFi, which on its face sounds great. Okay, we're going to put them out there into the world to do that. Fast forward to November of last year, and this Kyle Rittenhouse thing happened, and the founder and director, rather, of Fight for the Future is on Twitter saying, um, after Kyle Rittenhouse is found innocent, I'll quote, racist ass shithole country about America. Um, She made uh, um, multiple comments about white people, white power, uh, you know, that there was white racists involved and all these things about basically a lot of really bad stuff, uh, anti-white racist uh, comments on Twitter publicly, which I saw. And I immediately began to question, how can we have this person running an organization that is supposed to be driving DeFi policy forward in a positive way for all of us, not just for Democrats, not just for um, any category of people, okay? Specifically, this person's organization was given half a million dollars by the DeFi Education Fund to achieve this goal. When this kind of thing happens, and there's still um, 375000 out of the half a million that was scheduled to be paid out, the seven committee members looked at this and decided, you know what? We're not going to act on it. We still think that this is the right way to go. I don't think that that decision would have been made if there was a different mix of ideologies on the committee. And unfortunately, I think that the match, and you can tell me if you want how, if there was a conversation or if lack thereof, whatever. But to me, this was the kind of thing where this money was meant to achieve a specific goal for everybody, not just for DeFi startups, not just for any category everybody. And when you have somebody out there who is viciously attacking our country, our race, our gender, you know, it's like, and they're still going to go out there and they're going to drive policy forward. How is that okay? And would that have happened with a more of a mix of people and ideologies on the committee? Yeah. So I don't like, and I don't think this is what you're trying to do. I, I don't do like the, I used to do the political discussion thing. I like never do the political discussion anymore. Politics suck and they're dumb. Um, but, but I do the, are people good people thing or not? Um, and, um, this wasn't ignored. I, I like, I'm, I'm being hesitant, uh, cause as like a board member, I actually have like confidentiality obligations, but I'll, I'll try to say like stuff, which is like, this wasn't ignored. <laughs> it was discussed. There were changes in processes that actually happened as a result of it. Um, so it had nothing like literally the the political aspect of it never came up. The only aspect that came out, I, I shouldn't even talk about like processes changed as a result of this <laughs> um, because there was a discussion about it and there is literally no discussion around like, is this the fact that she tweeted about these specific things like from a political perspective, it was irrelevant. It was like, is this an appropriate type of thing that is okay? It's not. It's not about the position taken by that. It's the type of of language and message you're trying to convey 
that is actually important, right? And like nobody, this is like no secret, right? Like nobody should agree with like talking like that as being okay, in my opinion. Like that's, you people shouldn't talk like that. It's like actually simple. I don't care what you're talking about. You don't talk like that. Um, and so, yeah, changes changes were made. Um, but I, I honestly literally can't say more <laughs> um, because I'm not Okay. I, I don't know what that means. And I'm not trying to get into a political I, I, I know debate. you don't know what that means. It's not like a satisfactory answer. And I'm not, I don't want to get into a political debate with you, but I do want to ask you, like, if if the if the if this had been just slightly different if this person had made anti black statements would the same would it have been treated in the same way i mean i'm only going to talk about like my perspective because i didn't ask the others how they would feel about it i literally do not care what the topic was you don't talk like that about anything period see I think this would have been I, I, the the treatment of this was similar to how it would have been treated at Google or Twitter or anywhere else where it's because it was a certain uh, direction that the hate was sent that it's like it's a little more acceptable you know we're gonna let it slide whatever you know but that and I'm again I'm not bringing it up to debate that with you I'm bringing it up because the people on the committee and again when I see World Economic Forum I know. Okay, that's one vote out of seven. They are primed to act in a certain way. They're not primed to act the way I would act. They're not primed to act the way probably 100 million Americans would act or think. They're primed to think in a progressive way. And the fact that this has all been lined up like dominoes by Andreessen leads me to believe that Andreessen's influence from the first step just the dominoes fall and it all goes exactly according to plan with the committee members, with the delegates, you know, with decisions like this, you know, with, and then it extends to policy. It extends to policy. And I, I, I appreciate everything you've been saying, but I, and I think that you're, again, I, I hate saying this kind of stuff because it, it's seen as a character attack, but it's not. But I think that the people on the committee don't, fully see the context of the way it was all put together, you know? And I think that this not being a decentralized discussion about who's on the committee, about how much money is involved, about the, the policy directions, about the, the objectives. And, you know, none of this was discussed. None of it. It's all dictated from the top down, from God in the sky, in the clouds. It's a mystery uh, place. Obviously, it's freaking Andreessen. So, you know, it's like for that to be dictated down all the way down to and then it imp impacts decisions like this where we're just going to let it slide and racist ass white shithole country or whatever, whatever she said. Um, to me, that is a clear sort of symptom of the bigger issue. And I think it will extend to the objectives that you guys have as a group. Um, we didn't talk a lot about the World Economic Forum involvement, but World Economic Forum um, is a very, very uh, clear progressive force in DeFi um, and is, you know, again, you're really close to it. So you probably, you know, I know nothing about crazy. the World Economic Forum. Like, okay. <laughs> I don't really care about the World Economic Forum. I want somebody who knows policy and sure. I'm going to deal with the, if when I get to know somebody and they have views that are 
uh, politicized or changed and different from mine, then I'm going to push back and I'm going to convince others on, on what I want. And I, mm-hmm. I don't care less what organization somebody is, is with. I'm going to hear what they say. I'm going to yeah. disagree with them if they have a view that I like disagree with. And I'm going to convince everybody else the right approach to take. And that that's it. I, I'm, I'm good. But I am going to say, cause like, this is like really important. There is based on the discussion that happened, there is no way that the content of like the political swinging of that or whatever. I don't know, like how you put the race thing. I, I don't care how it swung. The bottom line is it would not have been dealt with differently. Like absolutely like at all. It just well, like wasn't, it didn't matter what was said. It was about saying something of that nature. You don't say things of that nature. It's like that simple. Um, anyway. I think it would have been dealt with differently just because it would have raised more of a, a fuss on Twitter, to be honest with you. And then we would have been unavoidable. I, if you guys kept paying her 375 grand. Tell, but I don't really care what other people say. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. If, if people think dislike me, they can dislike me. I'm going to do what I think is like right and based on my incentives, as we've discussed. And I tried to convey them pretty clearly here. Um, okay. Well, just to wrap up, uh, DeFi Education Fund. Um, I don't, I, I, my takeaway is still that it was a top-down dictated, um, process, the content of the proposal, the committee, um, you know, top-down, no discussion. This is how it's going to be. Um, there was refusal to engage across the board, um, not decentralized at all. Um, regulator would look at this and be like, how can you call your governance decentralized when you did this? How can you possibly call your governance decentralized when you did this and refuse to engage with the community on something as critical as the actual members of this committee? Um, so that that's, you know, I don't know if you have any final thoughts on that before I mean, you can, I, you get to ask me a bunch of stuff you want to ask. Yeah. I mean, no, like my only thing is like, I, I just evaluate, like, I understand evaluating its formation. To me, it's, um, if you view it in the way you do, like, it's a black eye on governance. Um, to me, it's what is the DeFi Education Fund doing and is it making a positive impact is, like, the bottom line. And then, like, separately, do we need to do something about Uniswap governance? Like, <laughs> to me, they're, they're, they're separate. So, like, I think the black eye that like people try to put on the DeFi education fund because of like whatever thing is like, I don't know. I kind of, I'll prove them otherwise. I've, I've proved people okay. my whole life. Well, again, like my concerns go on past even today into where it's all going into sure. what direction yeah, and what the I priorities are. Um, so yeah, I, I've said on Twitter many times, I think it should be disbanded, eliminated. The money should go back to the treasury and that we need to find a decentralized way to form a committee, if there is a committee, um, that represents interests that are not just dictated by the companies and by the, the shareholders, but by the community. This pro- this uh, proposal, this committee had absolutely no real substantial feedback or changes made by the community. So that's my biggest concern about it. So um, did you, so we've gone really long Yeah, and I'm fine with it. I don't know if you have to go, but I know you wanted to like 10 minutes. I just want to like, I want to jump into like your incentives a little bit. Like, so I'm just going to leave it open there. Like what are your incentives in DeFi? So 
my incentives in uh, let's widen it. I mean, in, in crypto in general, I got into crypto because I saw an opportunity to escape the fiat, you know, um, the fiat cage <laughs> that we basically live in. You know, so that that was my impetus for getting into Bitcoin in the first place. When I got into DeFi, it was because I saw an opportunity. You know, obviously, like Bitcoin is decentralized, decentralized currency. But we had no decentralized tools to use it with. Everything is centralized. So with DeFi, initially, the promise that was being made was these are the decentralized tools that you've been waiting for. You know, so that's why I initially in 2019, I guess, like sort of got involved, jumped into it, got excited, started doing content, educating people. And then once I found out the centralization was there and it wasn't really as decentralized as most of us thought, um, my, um, my, you know, time got diverted to trying to educate people about that, you know, because I think that if DeFi succeeds in a way that's compromised by regulation, by government long-term, um, that's going to be very, very bad for liberty. And I've been, um, getting back to incentives, incentivized um, kind of like at a spiritual level, I don't know, you know, for, for the whole liberty cause for decades, right, since I was in college. Um, and um, it's one of those things that I – have been willing to sacrifice money, sacrifice relationships, sacrifice a lot for, you know, and it extends even to now with the past two years with the pandemic and everything that's been happening. A decision had to be made, you know, at the start of the pandemic by everybody. Am I going to be honest or am I going to just cover my ass so I can keep a career, keep a reputation after this is all over? And I spent a long, long time um, putting money first and working for companies and hiding, you know, for a long time before the pandemic, you had to, you couldn't go to work at a tech company and, you know, be like, hey, I'm like a right wing kind of libertarian. Like, I don't believe in, you know, I think Hillary sucks, you know, like, I, <laughs> please, I would have been laughed out of the room by half these startups. So, um, you know, I just reached a point where I said, you know what, I'm switching gears. And, you know, to be honest with you, the incentive really flipped for me, not to get too deep, but um, my brother died in 2010. And I had a moment right then and there, I'd experienced so much before that in my career, where I was chasing money and chasing reputation and stuff like that. And I just said to myself, at some point, something shifted, where it's like, I am not going to put money first. I'm not going to, I need to be satisfied on this level before I can deal with money. And um, that's extended to now. So for the past two years, I have basically just committed to being honest and to educating people in a way that I think is going to further principles that I believe in and sacrificing career opportunities, especially in DeFi. I was making money, projects where I was getting grants and stuff to make video content um, before I started to educate about the centralization. All that went away. Okay, it was gone. So, um, and I've actually now that I was dry for 2020, 
Um, last year, I got a couple offers to do video content for projects that have centralization issues that I saw, and I turned it down. And um, my wife wanted to kill me. But like, you know, it's, I, I turned it down because I knew that I wanted to have a voice that would remain principled. And so that when I have conversations like this, I can say, I'm not getting paid. Therefore, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to steer a conversation a certain way or anything like that. Um, because to me, the bigger issue is global finance becoming si- sort of like surveillance finance, one world government, keeping an eye on us, social credit scores, all the stuff we've been talking about. Um, so my incentives are on a, on a deeper level as yours are too, with, you know, with regard to decentralization, um, and things like that. But the difference is that I'm, I'm not getting paid by anybody. So I don't have a financial incentive. Um, I will say this though. I do have a financial incentive in seeing crypto overall go up in value. Because, you know, anybody who owns it does, you know, and uh, that goes for um, Ethereum based stuff, too. You know, so um, I've said many times publicly that as much as I think that DeFi could end up hurting our liberty, um, I don't think it's a bad investment. (laughs) I think that, you know, if you're looking just for gains, this is a great place to be. So um there is, I, I almost work in conflict with some of my financial incentives. I was going to say, so do you, so do you own DeFi tokens? Like, do you- I never talk about what I own or what I don't own. I actually don't own any crypto if anybody is listening that wants to send me any so bills. This, for any- is the, this is the part that I wanted to dig into. And like, um, you're, you're, I know you can handle a lot. So I'll just be like super direct about, since we've had like a good conversation. I think, so we, we talked about the whole multi-sig issue, right? And like, so I, I agree with you on that issue. A part that I don't agree with you on has been like how you've approached it. Because basically what you've asked people, actually, I don't disagree with you. I'm actually split on it. But, but this discussion proves the point, which is, while I agree with you that we should want to know who the multi-sig, actually, actually, they shouldn't exist. But like, if they're going to exist, you should know who they are. But if you're a multi-sig holder, that is a very very bad idea to tell you who holds those multi, like who holds the keys, like a really bad idea. <laughs> like they're essentially inviting an attack on themselves. Um, it's like just not best practices, just like it's not best practice for you to tell us that you own any crypto or that you own any DeFi tokens. So like, I'm kind of curious into like how you square that because like you have an influence on, like, and right. The response I would expect would be, they have billions of dollars, right? That they're and they have obligation, but like no, a big following. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't push teams to dox their multi-sig signers. I don't. I will ask them, who are your multi-sig signers? If they say they're not named, I won't tell me. I won't tell them you must name them. I tell them why should anybody trust a group of three or five or seven anonymous people with their money? That's a different question. So I'm not saying you should list the names. I understand that. I understand it fully. What I'm saying is, why should anybody trust that? It's it's kind of like, I don't, there's a, probably a name for this kind of phenomenon where um, if, they fo- if they followed through 
with that implied thing that you just said, like the full listing of multi-sig signers, then yeah, it might be bad for them. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't ask the really relevant questions. If a multi-sig is fully anonymous, then there's no reason, there's no reputation at stake. There's no reason that those anonymous players can't become malicious and turn around. We don't even know if that's all one person and just how they have nine keys, right? It's like, we don't know what's going on. And we've seen this happen before. So it's a different issue for me. I'm not thinking, it doesn't really, to be honest with you, it doesn't matter to me if I know the identities or not. The reputation does help, but it doesn't negate, as we just saw with the whole um, Wonderland thing. You can know who somebody is and, and you know, you can, they'll still walk away with your money, you know? So no, I, I agree with you. I'm very familiar with the idea of a wrench attack with the, what's at stake. If you hold an admin key, I think it's terrible. We've seen 12 year olds in DeFi who had admin keys for millions of dollars. Like it's, it's terrible, terrible. Nobody should have an admin key for that reason, but it's a different conversation. You know, I, I understand security, but you put yourself there. You put yourself in that place. So we have to have the conversation. You put yourself there, and now you're asking people to trust you with their money. How can you square that? <laughs> you can't. So that's the question I'm asking. Okay. The, the last thing I'll ask, because I honestly could ask you a million questions, but I don't think we, we don't have time. I definitely don't have time. And I'm sure you don't either. Um, it's like, I definitely have a view on this. And, but I'm curious to like how you convey it, which is like along the same lines, like you have a big following, you gain more followers all the time. In that way, you're incentivized to take, frankly, extreme positions. And I'm talking about just DeFi. Like the, the reason for that is like, you don't need 10 million following followers to be successful. You can get by taking like extreme positions in DeFi alone, you can get to like a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand followers like with time. Like you'll get there. And like eventually you can make like a really good living off that. I would be there if I didn't tweet about anything else. Actually, that's point. You're definitely good. that's a good point. I've lost a lot of followers because of other things that I tweet that's about. That's probably right. If you combine that with like people not knowing if you own crypto. Or, or what crypto you own, own if you do. Um, what crypto family members of yours might own if they do. How you live on like a day-to-day. What I'm kind of like laying out is like trust, don't, like verify, don't trust, right? And like we we know that you have like um, a philosophy on, on certain things that you care about a lot. I guess how are people supposed to like trust that you're putting those ahead of financial incentives that they don't know anything about? Like they don't know what financial incentives you have. Like they don't know. I and nobody am I saying that Chris is doing this side note. Like you could be mm-hmm. shorting uni before you you post things about uni. And as your followers grow, like that becomes a more and more effective strategy, frankly. Like with they that. should assume that I am. I'll I'll I mean is put that, that is, out that, there. is that maybe your like is that the answer like frankly is like I, I'm actually asking like like Yes. Like, and I say this, that? I've said this publicly too. Um don't trust me. Period. Uh, don't trust me because yes, if if I started to make baseless claims or, you know, just saying, um, don't touch this, don't touch that. 
then yeah, you shouldn't trust me. What you need to do is look at what I say and decide if, it, if you have to trust me to believe it. And when I'm making a case about the DeFi education fund and I'm running down exactly what I think happened and all what I consider to be mostly facts, um, it doesn't matter if you trust me or not because you can come to the same conclusion on your own. You know, and when it comes to any of this stuff, um, now if I'm making opinion-based, you know, things about the principles of decentralization and trustlessness, and all, those are principles. Like I can't, I'm not going to lie about my principles. Like I mean, principles are print, and you don't have to believe them, and you can just unfollow me if you don't like my principles. So I do not go out there, um, and this is a, this is the main reason that I don't promote individual projects. Like I don't create content. I don't take money to do video series anymore because for this exact reason, because then I, people would look at me and say, well, you made this five part video series about how to use DYDX. So clearly, you know, um, and they paid you to do it. So clearly you're not going to say anything bad about them. Like it, it goes both ways, you know? And so I say, don't trust me. Um, if I say anything that you think requires you to trust me, um, and you can't research it on your own, then you probably just shouldn't believe it. I, I really truly believe this. And this is how I treat everything. Uh, I mean, half the, half my tweets are me asking for sources and, and more information about other tweets. <laughs> it's like, because you know, you can't believe anything you see these days. There's plenty of people on, on Twitter, DeFi Twitter, who are constantly saying, you know, Hey, you should use this, um, DeFi app, you can get a thousand percent and here's a video on how to use it. And oh, I love it. It's awesome. And, you know, and my first question is always like, okay, does, is there a multi-sig? Like, does it have, um, most of what I do is ask questions, man. It's really most of what I do, <laughs> you know, it's like, you don't have to trust a question, the question, the answer is what you have to trust, you know? And, uh, so that's really my take on it. I don't think people should, should just trust me. And then the other thing I will say again, I've lost many, I'm blocked by like half a DeFi Twitter. Okay. I'm actually nervous to go to ETH Denver because it's going to be really weird. Um, a lot of people unfollowed me, blocked me. I'm totally convinced I'd be like a hundred, 150,000 followers or whatever. Um, if I didn't say what I thought about, you know, mandates, if I didn't say what I thought about, um, lockdowns and, and if I didn't say what I thought about DeFi, if I was, I was doing great with YouTube, man when I pulled my stuff off YouTube because of what they were doing to censor the truth, you know, like I was doing great. I was making money um, with the videos, even though I was educating uh, about centralization. I mean, not great, like a few hundred bucks a month, a lot of views though. Um, so I don't know what more to say about that. I think that, that that's always been my take though. I haven't been bashful about it. Cool. No, that makes sense. Um, I love to chat more. It's fun. Yeah, um, let's wrap it up. I yeah, I uh, I have a call that I'm now running late for. <laughs> ah, no worries, man. We stayed way long. This was only supposed to be two hours. Um, so, but hey, I appreciate it. And if you want some time, um, we can do it again, or you can turn the tables on me if you want. It's all good. I appreciate it. Yeah.